off the ball. He is desperate to beat Shearer's record. There's no doubt about that. If he does beat Shearer's record, that record may last forever. Subscribe now to the OTB Football Podcast stream wherever you get your podcasts and download the OTB Sports app. OTB AM with Gillette Labs. Get the ultimate shave or your money back. Neon Night Edition, available now. Monday morning, half past seven. You're very welcome along. This is OTBAM. We've got a full house. Kathleen's here. Kathleen, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Shane is here. Shane, how are you? Good morning. How was all? You're a bit bleary eyed, Shane. You're up late watching the golf. Watching the golf. And uh, it was a, I thought this was a great decision. It's going to be really, really tight. Tommy Fleetwood's there. Nick Taylor is there. The Canadian, the home favourite. Uh, and then it just kept going to one playoff hole, two playoff holes, three playoff holes, then a fourth. And I was like, I just need to go to sleep. But I stayed up, stayed up. And I'm glad I did because 72 foot putt to win it for Nick Taylor the Canadian fans going absolutely wild um, one of his good mates as well a professional player is it Hadwin was uh, was running on to celebrate with him and take photographs and All he right. was absolutely milled out of it by a security guy All right. on the green as he was running towards his friend to give him a hug I well, mean cleaned out oh can't, can't take any risks in fairness yeah it's true it's true but uh, what, what a finish and you, you had Shane Lowry there and, and all the other uh, Irish and English players right a cup teammates of Tommy Fleetwood kind of supporting him at each hole but uh, yeah I'm a bit tired didn't get to bed about half one I want to say McElroy didn't do anything in the final day no tied for ninth uh, and, and once again disappointing final round same as last week um, just a few shots that went missing in that final round and I mean considering where he was I think he was only a shot or two off CT Pan head into the final round so he was in with a really good shout Pan shoots a two under uh, final round to just miss out in the playoff but Rory, yeah, Rory faded, which is disappointing to see. So the golf it didn't make it into our performance rankings. Tom Cannon didn't make it into our performance rankings. Okay. He is um, taking some time to consider his options. Uh, England have made an approach to him. His agent is David Moy's brother, um, mm. who has been in contact with Stephen Kenny. And after this uh, section of games is over, Kenny's going to meet Tom Cannon's agent and they're going to have a conversation about Tom Cannon's future. Kenny is not um, talking about what that conversation will entail, but you'd have to say it doesn't look good. No. At this stage, it's like a young English player gets called up by England, doesn't come to Ireland. Sense of deja vu. Have we seen this movie before? Exactly. Jim Crawford said in March, he said, "Ah, this is not going to be a Jack Grealish, Declan Rice situation. And now all of a sudden you're like, (laughs) (laughs) it's going to be exactly that situation. Like he missed the camp last, the senior camp because of tonsillitis. And you might look at this story and go, Okay, did he have tonsillitis? He did have tonsillitis. Yeah, Stephen Kenny, to be fair, did say, "Look, I know what it, I know how it looks," but he did have tonsillitis. So, yeah, give the benefit of the doubt there. I think. And also, surely it's the sort of thing where they're not just starting to have these conversations. Like these are conversations that have been ongoing for a while, and it's just now that the FA have popped up, things have maybe escalated a little bit, and the fact that it's coming out makes it seem more likely that it's going to happen. And like, I think we all were scared about the fact that he was scoring too many goals in the championship. <laughs> like he's. He seems pretty good. It's a terrible state of affairs when you're worried about your players performing well in the league <laughs> and on the off chance that that'll then get them pulled away somewhere else. It is. It absolutely is. And I think it actually should remind everybody about what the FAI did last week was try and build a football industry or the plans 
to the architecture and the apparatus required to build the football industry and Kenny's talking about that in the papers today as well so we'll come back to that later on in the week plenty of time for us to look forward to the Republic of Ireland John Klein also not in our performance rankings would he be in red or would he be in green well turns out he's not going to be in green (laughs) Uh, he has decided that he is South African again uh, having been Irish of course uh, and controversially picked for the last World Cup but uh, controversially left out of this one from an Ireland perspective it now looks like he's going to um, be part of South Africa so he will be in their green just not our green we'll talk with Quinny about that and Keith Wood about that later on in the week if you've got a view on that or indeed anything else that we're covering this morning you can get us on youtube.com forward slash off the ball that's uh, the YouTube channel that we broadcast on you need to be subscribed to our YouTube channel to be able to leave a comment we'll get to the live comments in a few minutes if anybody has any other recommendations or stuff that we've missed uh, you can also get us 0879 is the WhatsApp number or you can get us at Off The Ball AM on Twitter. Here's what's coming up between now and 10 o'clock for you. The performance rankings are imminent. Martin Lipton's going to talk to us about the uh, Champions League. We've got Sarah Donovan in the meantime. At 8 o'clock, Karen Duggan's going to talk to us about the uh, little hiatus that the league goes on now with a big lead for P-Mount at the top of the table. And Carl Dennehy is going to join us at 10 past 9 to reflect on Rashida Adelecki becoming genuinely world-class. The time that she ran when she won the NCAA Championship at the weekend would have won silver in the Olympics. Uh, so that's at around about 10 past 9. We'll play a clip from the pay-per-view at half past 9. In the meantime, time for the Gillette Labs performance rankings. You know, that wasn't an All-Ireland winning performance. Probably should have won the game based on the second half performance. Is it a step too far to say it was the performance so far of the World Cup? Maybe not. OTBAN's performance rankings with Gillette. I'm, I'm, I'm scratching my head at performances. We've just lacked that intensity. Yep, let's get straight into it. And I think we're starting in uh, Istanbul and UEFA being in the red. Uh, of course, Champions League final in the, the Ataturk Stadium in Istanbul on Saturday evening. And, Jer, you had a... An interesting journey to get to the stadium, let's just say. Uh, yeah, I didn't realise we were first up here, so I was uh, like, oh, OK. Uh, Grant, we should start with this then. Um, so the Champions League obviously had was supposed to be in Istanbul in the year of COVID. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I think, I think a lot of people are surprised that last year was obviously a complete shit show where the French police were entirely unprepared for what was going to happen. They tried to blame the Liverpool fans for what happened and ultimately it proved to be... Uh, UEFA ticketing nonsense and also uh, French policing nonsense and uh, nothing to do with the Liverpool fans whatsoever and it was really really dangerous there were crushes and and it could have been um, a really significantly um, dangerous outcome so everybody assumed this year things would run with you know uh, military precision and everybody would be very careful but it turns out the Ataturk Stadium is really really difficult to get to there's there's two ways to get to it. Uh, one is a metro, which is relatively newly opened, which the Manchester City fans were told not to use because that was going to be how the Interfans got out there. And um, then the other way was to go by road. And uh, it turns out the, roads, the road network isn't very good to get to the Ataturk. It kind of seems to be like on this, uh, almost like an island with one tiny road in and one tiny road out. And so everybody who went out on the buses... Uh, got out there and then there was loads of traffic and so from about two and a half hours three hours beforehand the roads out were basically blocked and you weren't going anywhere um, some of the man uh, Miguel Delaney had a great piece in the Independent yesterday where he was reporting on that the Man City fans who got the buses that they were scheduled to get were told sorry you're not going to be allowed to bring any water into the stadium so you're going to have to give us the water now before you get on the buses and then the sun beats down and everybody's on the buses with no water and they're trapped. And 
Some people are puking on the buses. Oh. Some people are pissing out the windows. Jesus. There's no toilets. And it just sounds like it was not much fun. Uh, so all you got to do at that stage is get out and walk. And you, a lot of people got out and walked. And they walked on the roads, which it turned out are kind of like, you know, M50 style roads, where you're literally walking in the road. And there's a, a hard shoulder. And sure, the only ones who are going up and down the hard shoulder are the cops who are flying. So you're, you're, if, if, if I didn't go this way, but... Um, we we got a, a, a minibus. There was seven of us going out, eight of us going out, and we got a minibus and we got out with about you know what looked like an hour of a walk left to go. And uh, our our group got separated, and I'll explain why in a moment. And so some of them went that way with the M50, and they were like, "You're literally walking on the dual carriageway, and uh, there's there's traffic, which is obviously choked, except on the on the hard shoulder, which is full of cops who are like going past you, and it's like uh, this doesn't seem very safe." Uh, again, some beaten down, and everybody's like a little bit anxious getting to kick off. So when we when we got to uh, where we had to abandon, uh, we bumped into some locals who were like, "Oh, you can just go, you can walk down there. It's ten minutes, ten minutes." So you know, took that at face value, <laughs> and we looked down, and we're like, sure enough, there was like a, a, a very hilly Istanbul, a big kind of green park, which was like nice, and there was like families eating uh, picnics and playing football. And you're like, "Oh, this is going to be a nice little gentle stroll up to the stadium." And then, uh, and then we we got to a, a a road and looked. Okay, there's a bit of scrubland that looks like we'd be able to walk up there. And again, um, that was when things took a little bit of a turn. <laughs> <laughs> Just a bit. Yeah. So there's like there's no one around really, apart from like a, a a line of ants, human ants in the distance, who are like look like they're walking up um, what looks like a path to the stadium but it turned out it wasn't the path to the stadium it was just scrubland and to get to the scrubland there was um, you know you know those canals that they have in, in LA where there's never any water and it's like there's drag racing because they were in every movie ever Grand Theft Auto yeah exactly but to, to get to the canal there's like a sheer wall of stone that you have to slide down and you know obviously we were, we'd had a few beers and oh, this is going to be fine so you get down and you're like oh, I can't get back up there's, no, there's nowhere to go here so then, for the next hour, basically, we had to uh, climb through scrubland to get to the top of it. We've got so I've, I've got some videos. Well, let's roll it there, Roshi, the first one, please. So this is the very top. This is after 45 minutes of climbing. You're like, oh, we're finished. No, we're not finished. At the Ataturk, but not quite. Having climbed over the Shawshank River of shit. <laughs> to get up here that's like that looks much more steep than it does uh, sorry that doesn't look anywhere near as steep as it actually is in real life yeah, uh, like, it's yeah. kind of remarkable we have you here this morning at all well you know it turns out a few drinks is exactly what you need otherwise <laughs> yeah. but th- that was the thing in retrospect like if somebody had gone over on their ankle you were never getting out you were never getting out they weren't sending a helicopter in to get you they were like well you're a fool what are you doing why didn't you walk along the M50 like everybody else uh, so there's one more there where actually I, so there's another bit of scrub which I've got I anyway the, uh, poison ivy and stuff that you had to crawl over oh yes mm. this is actually up at the very top that's the stadium well kind of the stadium and then that's the whole way back up yeah, so I don't know. Maybe, maybe so you had to get across that road to get to the stadium. Oh well, then then there's like a tiny little ravine that you have to get over, and you're kind of in around the side. It's just it was one of the worst organised things you're ever going to see. And like Istanbul is a an amazing teeming multiplicity of human life. It's um, 
but it's definitely not the right place. There, there, are, there are grounds within the, the, the uh, you know, walkable access from the city. I'm not sure they have the right capacity. And then at the stadium, the concessions were apparently an absolute nightmare. It's like only two for food or something in the entire stadium. And uh, one of the guys we were with had food and was like, the burger was raw, the sausage was raw. It was Ooh. like completely inedible by the time um, that happened. So not enough water, not enough supplies, just a general shit show from UEFA again, who don't seem to care about the football fans. And after last year, you would have thought like they would have made a significant investment in making sure that this one passed off. But I don't know. Will it make any? Will it make a blind bit of difference? Because on, on the TV, the stadium, the stadium visually looked unbelievable. Oh. So you're thinking oh, that's this the is thing class. I couldn't understand, like watching it, because I'd seen all the stuff on Twitter beforehand, and then they had the like, pre-match show, and I was like, this is incredible. That must yeah. have cost them so much money. Like even to get three acts alone, that must have cost like millions. And then you see all the chaos and you're like, well, why couldn't you put that into like water or toilets mm. or all the very basics that you actually need to host an event well, of this size? If the size. transport was like that in 2023, what was it like in 05? For I think it was the same. I don't think it's... It actually it hasn't changed. Well, oh, sorry, the, I think there's been a metro built in the meantime. There, at one stage, right, we were walking out and um, we could see the metro in the distance and it looked like the metro was entirely empty. I don't know if it, like they dropped everybody off the stadium or a stop early, but it definitely didn't look like the Metro was as full. And this was getting close to kickoff time, so maybe the Interfans had all got out early mm. and uh, it was taunting us anyway. There was definitely some empty well, train Well, a lot of the reports like, oh, that I uh, saw were that anyone who did get the Metro were actually probably the best off. Like, it wasn't particularly comfortable and it did still take a while, but, I mean, it wasn't scrambling over ravines yes, and yeah. getting stung by poison ivy like yourself. <laughs> uh, where's your sense of adventure, Ger? Actually, it was, we did, we, you know, it was, it was, in retrospect, really dangerous. Uh, in in the in the moment, we're like, oh, look, this, this is great. But anyway, turns out you're bad luck for Champions League finals, Jer. Wow. Like you've been to both of those horrific ones the last couple of years. As the one in Madrid was was really straightforward and really great. True. Yeah, well, uh, there were some fans breaking through in the uh, Liverpool. Is it Wembley game. next year? You can go it again. Is, it is Wembley next yeah. year. Yeah. At least I mean, hopefully they will have learned. <laughs> like Wembley, so safe. All right. Obviously, no problems at Wembley oh, ever. Never, never. No. There is a Europa League final in Dublin next year. So. Mm. Um, Maybe maybe Dublin is the place to go. Hopefully know. the dart is better than the Turkish Metro. Turkish not so delight. Hey. For Jared, Right, keep going. Yeah, move on. Uh, also in the red are the uh, provincial losers in the hurling yesterday. I mean, just drama. Drama, drama, drama. They shouldn't be in the red, really, should they? Possibly This is, this is just to shoehorn a reference to the hurling in before we get to Sarah Donovan. Because, uh, like, you can't put Claire and Galway in the red after what they've done. No, of course not. Uh, so this is more of a technicality. Let's talk about hurling and find some way. They're in the red because they they lost. Well, I mean, I feel like Galway will definitely feel like they're in the red this morning after the way, like, Henry Shefflin, he didn't do any media after the game yesterday, apart from chatting to Galway Bay FM. Yeah. And he said he'd just come out of the dressing room and the, he was like, I, I don't even know what to say to them. Like, they're just absolutely devastated there is like a pile of gloom over the entire room which you can totally oh, <laughs> understand another four in a row for Kenny and then like I, I was sitting watching with my Galway father yesterday and you can imagine when you're back from eight points down and you get to the two point lead he was buzzing he was buzzing in injury time 75 minutes on the clock um, and Podrick Mannion of course loses his hurl kicks the ball clear what else is he going to do but of course he kicks it directly to the Kenny sub Killian Buckley and the rest is history, buried in the bottom. It's like, right you know, in commentary when someone's like, you know, they just need to kick it anywhere. Or they just need to put the ball anywhere away from goal. And you're like, no, it's not just anywhere. That anywhere <laughs> isn't exactly accurate. The away, um, away from goal is the point. Like, maybe yeah. don't kick it right back across your own goal again. Yeah. Like, um, 
So maybe maybe the aspects of Galway's performance will be in the red. But the fact that they've come back from where they were in that game, the fact that Conor Whelan exploded into the championship uh, in a meaningful way, and their their side of the draw, like you know, it's going to be very difficult for them to get back to an All Ireland semi final. But it's not impossible at this point. Mm. So this is where you know Shefflin is really going to have to. Uh, make his bones as an intercounty manager because you've got to pick the dressing room up. But at the same time, they're very, very close to being able to beat Kilkenny. And like we know that they're, we know that they have all the accoutrements required to be able to mount a challenge. Limerick are not as far ahead of everybody as they have been in previous years. There's a there's a winnable All Ireland left for all the teams who were contenders at the start of the year. They're still contenders now. Yeah, hundred percent. And and like there were aspects of Galway's performance you can be pleased with, like the, the like six points to one early quick start. Kilkenny, of course, come back into the game, um, and like Conor Whelan was brilliant. Was it one six from play? And and like there was a number of players in that Galway team. They do seem to let teams back into it in the Dublin game. The last day out was was concerning, but level at half time, and then you think Galway have it won, and it's just absolute. Gut wrenching stuff and the little quick handshake between Dirtling and Henry Shefflin afterwards uh, spoke volumes. Shefflin was clearly devastated. The photo um, of Brian Cody from the stands yeah, the minute the buzzing. goal goes in is excellent. Fair play to whichever of the photographers that had it, probably had the camera just like trained on him for like those final few moments just to get any reaction possible. Yeah, and TJ Reid, I think he had one miss from 10 shots, and one of those frees in the second half from downtown was just ridiculous. Um, so yeah, can he be like, like straight into an All Ireland semi final? Galway have to, of course, play the winner of Tippin Offaly in a very difficult quarter final, um, and then of course play Limerick in a semi final if they if they do win that. So they're going to have to do it the hard way. Um, but it remains to be seen. Clare, of course, again, <laughs> like did did very little wrong in that game. So hence why it's probably harsh to have them in the in the red one twenty three to one twenty two. And I suppose the, the talking point is the controversy at the end. The decision making from from the referee, a uh, couple of fouls that looked like fouls to to most people uh, with eyeballs. And, One was uh, like a full on rugby tackle. Yeah, it would have been a red card in rugby. And then of course there's the whole madness of the like the ball being waved wide and the fans running on prematurely and everyone had to get back off. Uh, just a bit of a carnage finish to that one at the Gaelic grounds in Limerick. Um, Feels like Claire did kind of leave it behind them watching it. I mean, there was like five or six shots that they missed just before halftime that all went wide and mm. that just felt like the moment for them to really like turn the screw on Limerick and get that lead, like a nice lead going into the second half. I feel like they'll definitely be more annoyed at themselves than Galway are annoyed at themselves. I think Galway probably did as much as they could and it was just an utter shame that they oh. let the goal in at the end, whereas Claire will definitely feel like they should have done more against Limerick Billy Clare are now in Munster the, the, they're the Mayo of Munster in terms of the Munster Championship so they've lost now six finals since last winning in 1988 like Tony Kelly will he be the greatest player never to win a Munster hurling title I don't know like, surely he's going to win one before he uh, retires but um, you have to say like John Kiley got everything right in game management was was excellent Um and, and Limerick, I know you say like the, the other teams have probably closed the gap. They've definitely closed the gap. Yeah, but but you still like Limerick now in an All Ireland semi final against a Galway or a Tip. You'd still fancy them. Yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously you'll fancy them. Um, they do have injuries. They've got plenty of time for those injuries to come right. They said that Keen Lynch will be in um, available, and uh, John Kiley said there'll be no hungrier man in the world than mm. than Keen Lynch. But so the, uh, Christy O'Connor has a brilliant piece today in the examiner we was talking about the efficiency that Limerick had versus what Clare had Clare's conversion rate was 48% uh, 
um, with the number as low as 42% in the second half. Limericks was 65% in the same period. Clare's freeze from harder positions, albeit, but their conversion rate from place balls was 45% compared to Limericks, 89%. They also dropped six short as well. Aaron Galan, uh, from 12 possessions, scored one three and fouled for another three frees and could have had another goal as well. So, I don't know how how much more Limerick can do, but it does feel as if teams are beginning to believe that they can beat them and getting closer to beating them and have actually beaten them this year. Like, that's the thing. that This isn't the unconquerable Limerick that we've seen before, which I think sets it up brilliantly. So, uh, two, four, five, five good hurling matches guarantee of five good hurling matches I think yeah. assuming that they can recover that was the big problem that like you put everything into this and this is the one reason why they could both be in red we saw last year that losing the Munster final took so much out of Clare mm. at the very end when uh, so they, they scraped through the next game and then just couldn't get up for Crow Park so if the same thing happens this year it'll be devastating for them yeah, if, they, if they're not able to perform in a semi-final but you know like they're going to be able to put things right in the semi-final against the same opponents yeah, they'll have other chances for sure. Uh, like Brian Lohan will probably be disappointed. Conor Cleary, uh, like his injury was was a rough one for them to take, and then he puts Kean Nolan on Aaron Gillan, and Nolan struggled heavily. It has to be said, Gillan was having a field day, and then I thought they were maybe a little bit too late to make the switch. Uh, so yeah, a couple of decisions as you say, Kathleen, Clare maybe left it behind them a little bit. So yeah, both in red, Clare and Galway, but on a technicality. We'll move on to Amber. And Manchester City give them the credit that they deserve, albeit with 115 potential financial breaches to come. Uh, and those charges, of course, we'll wait and see what happens with those. But on the pitch in Istanbul, um, not, not the dominant City performance that some people may be expected, but again, it's a Champions League final. There's pressure. It's a treble on the line. Pep Guardiola's legacy at City at stake. And uh, uh, the Rodri goal was a lovely little finish. Um, the De Bruyne injury, people are thinking this, is, uh, this makes it interesting. Um, torn the hamstring off so a few months out not that it matters necessarily over the summer um, Stones was brilliant again uh, both goalkeepers excellent I thought like the chances for Inter Milan at the end you're like this is this is going to go to extra time Lukaku I don't, like, are we calling Lukaku's header a, a horrendous miss as Chris oh. Sutton called it or an unbelievable yeah. save by Onana? no what are you doing he, uh, it was straight at him <laughs> Lukaku no the power was excellent um, and there was the, the defender jumping in, in front of the flight of the ball to, to maybe put him off slightly so I thought actually even connecting with the header that well was, was something but it, like nine times out of ten if you connect that well with the header mm. keeper's not going to save it there's a good story I think it's in the Guardian this morning someone's writing about it about Guardiola that he was in the lift in the stadium I think going to do like media or something and uh, there was a TV nearby and it was showing replays of the Lukaku chance mm. and he was just like standing there staring at it and someone asked him a question being like you know do you think he should have scored or whatever and either he didn't hear it or he pretended not to hear it and the reporter said he just like kind of blew out a breath and was like <sighs> and walked off and got into the elevator and you could o- they were saying you could almost see the like relief in his face he knew like nine times out of ten that's probably going in and that's anywhere your... except straight at the goalkeeper and it's it's a goal anywhere except straight at the goalkeeper he literally it's like the keeper is kind of uh, I, I mean it's not like it was a brilliant piece of goalkeeping that had him in the right position for where Lukaku was going to head it it's like <laughs> Lukaku is like oh the guy over there yeah, I'm going to pass it to him oh, yeah. no, I'm not supposed to pass it to him he's not on my team <laughs> there was a there was a nice little battle on, on Instagram I don't know if people saw this between Rio Ferdinand and Brandon Williams over the game 
I saw I saw that he Brandon Williams post something on his Instagram story or something and Brandon he Williams said nobody wants a sloppy seconds, basically. Which uh I presume referred to the nineteen ninety nine treble. Uh so maybe he'd had a couple of beers and he was feeling a little bit uh tetchy on Instagram. And um then he called out Rio Ferdinand Rio bet you don't congratulate if you were it was a player. Keep the same morals. Snooze face emoji. Two face is boring. I don't know. Anyway. Doesn't take away from City's performance and win and victory and Pep Guardiola's uh like it's hard to compare himself and Alex Ferguson and I saw a lot of people doing that at the weekend and that seemed to be the, the narrative. But um what he's done with Manchester City, regardless of the, the financial stuff that uh, we'll wait and see what happens, um, on the pitch it's been outrageous. He's built a team that, that could become a dynasty. Um, um, I, uh, I, I just, no? You just got to be careful penciling stuff in the future. We're always in the rush to go, oh, this is going to be clear, they're going to dominate forever. But like, yeah. uh, take, if, if Silva goes, if Gundogan goes, which is very realistic, like, uh, and they couldn't control the game in the second half, against Inter uh, maybe that's because there's so much at stake and it's been so long in the build up but I don't know I, again a little bit like Limerick it felt like teams are beginning to find a way to play against Pep and they're beginning to find a way like Inter finished third in Serie A and created as many good chances in the game as Manchester City did and it seemed relatively straightforward for them and their their management team to work out Okay, um, press when we need to make sure that we have incredible energy around the pitch. And obviously, there just was a bit of a blunt edge. And maybe if there's a slightly better striker, they would have scored and potentially would have scored twice. Mm. So, I, like, I, I'm just not I'm not penciling in for a dynasty yet. I don't think, um, you know, uh, Catherine, were you talking about the um, previous treble winners or the comparison between? Yeah, well, it was talking about Alex Ferguson and when he won the treble and the fact that like the following year he made quite a few missteps in terms of like bringing players in and trying to like switch things up and then it was talking about Guardiola and when he won the Champions League and they brought in um, Zlatan the following year and how much of a disaster that was got rid of Esho and how it took Guardiola almost like another season or two to actually kind of regain some sort of confidence or trust in himself and um, like he just didn't it was almost like because he'd reached that pinnacle he didn't trust the players in front of him in the same way he did to do it again and the question was well what's he going to do now like you were saying there's like four or five players that they're looking to re-sign on contract extensions this summer also another couple of players are going to try and bring in they missed out on Jude Bellingham but there's a few others how what's the decision making process like when you've reached the pinnacle you've won the treble where do you go? What do you do? How do you improve a team like that? Yeah, and I think actually De Bruyne's injury isn't just a no big deal. Like, he is getting to the stage of his career where ripping the hamstring off your bone is going to be really serious and it might be Christmas before he's back in form and then does he get back in form and does he still have the same desire and drive now having finally scaled the mountain and become one of the all-time great footballers in, in history? So, I, I, I'm just not... Like, obviously they have endless resources. We know this, but... Um, so do many of the other teams in uh, in the Premier League, and it depends on who ends up buying Manchester United. Like it, you know, um, this and again the the repercussions for the allegations of the cheating and the cover up that they stand accused of. That's obviously why they're not in the green. Um, I think all of that. I, I I don't feel like this is the beginning of a dynasty at all. I feel like this is a team who are kind of getting over the clawing over the line at the end. 
Well, so to become a, a win, to become a team of winners, you need to bottle the, uh, the agony of defeat, which like those knockout stage uh, exits to Leon Spurs, Real Madrid, the final defeat to Chelsea two years ago. They obviously bottled that. If they can bottle this, uh, what Rio Ferdinand calls addictive feeling of winning, that that's how you become a dynasty. Like you have to bottle the absolute joy of this feeling. Zidane's. Zidane's Real Madrid, right, were vaguely or barely capable of winning a league and putting in the, the consistency over uh, a couple of years, uh, week in, week out, but were able to win back to back to back, right? Mm. Incredible stuff. Uh, and they were, they were a European Cup dynasty by the definition of what you're talking about. But, like, it's just such a different competition. Mm. I, 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 let's wait and see. That's right. Fergus Kehoe in the comments. Jock Steen won a quadruple with a team costing next to nothing. Alex Ferguson won a treble with a team containing Ronnie Anson and Jesper Blomqvist. But Pep, with his unlimited resources, is a genius. This is, this is the argument thrown against Pep, isn't it? Well, Pep is a genius. He like, is, yeah. uh, that's, like, Pep is a genius, what he did at Barcelona and the style of football that he developed. Some of the, he, his teams have played some of the greatest football ever seen. Like, that's like, oh, well, I'm a Man United fan and I can't appreciate anything other than I'm like, come on, come on. <laughs> like... like no one thinks Ferguson was a genius in terms of his tactical ability. What Ferguson could do was organise and manipulate and cajole and bully and force of personality, turn Aberdeen into a team who was capable of, of uh, stopping the old firm. So, like, these are different things. And it's OK for other people to be good at something that your team is also good at. <laughs> it's true. It's right, true. come on, come on. Yeah, let's we'll move on. Let's go on, come on. Get on to the green and we'll move on to uh, Novak Djokovic. Uh, who, of course, won his 23rd Grand Slam title at the weekend, a men's record, uh, moving him one clear of Rafa Nadal in terms of men's major. So now level with Serena Williams, one off Margaret Court's all-time record of 24. He's 36, still has chances to win it. Uh, of course, Wimbledon being his next opportunity to break that record. Um, and Margaret Court's record or equal it. Uh, and it was, it was a good match uh, in terms of Djokovic's performance because that uh, first set tie break was probably the, the turning point. Djokovic, uh, and I think Jenny Claffey said it to us last week, He's just unbelievable when it comes to tiebreaks. And mm-hmm. he won that tiebreak 7-1, goes on to win the second set 6-3, and then the, the uh, third and final set, as it turned out, 7-5. Um, the first man to win all four majors at least three times as well. So uh, he's ticking these off. Kasper Ruud will be disappointed, but uh, another experience of a Grand Slam final for him. Um, it's just a pity the Alcaraz semi-final wasn't the actual final, because that was yeah. such a good matchup between the two of them. And it feels like this is kind of like the future versus the... Well, not the past. You can't recall really the past, mm. considering what he's doing now. But the getting slightly older. <laughs> yeah, the sheer dominance of of Novak Djokovic is just yeah ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. So, Good man, Novak. Yeah, I know Yay. the villain. The villain wins. Such a <laughs> great hero for the world. Yeah, Man City um, and Novak. We'll move on to the other green, I think, because it deserves probably a couple of minutes extra. Rashida Adelecki, uh, you mentioned her at the top of the show, Jar, and she's just unbelievable. I mean, the the, the numbers, as you said, um, and, and we kind of spoke about it before the weekend as well, this NCAA like, record and, and race against Britton Wilson, this girl who she's had a lot of uh, battles with, uh, a lot of defeats too, it has to be said. Uh, but uh, extraordinary time of 49.20 seconds for Rashida uh, to take 400 metres gold. It's on her home track in Austin, Texas as well. That knocked another three-tenths of a second uh, off her national record for the event, which uh, she's now broken for the third time this outdoor season, uh, which is incredible. It's only 0.07 seconds off uh, Wilson's collegiate record. Um, she finished at 49.64. Um, it's, it's outrageous. And you said, Jer, how, how those numbers compared to... to like it would have been good enough to take gold at the 400 metres to the Europeans in Munich last summer, silver at the last World Championships, and a podium place at every single Olympic Games this century. 
Uh, it's the third fastest time in the world this year, the 20th fastest of all time by an athlete in that event. So, I mean, what's left to say about her? We promised we'd, she'd be in the green last week, but obviously she had to go and do this. In Adrian order to gave us a, a lot of uh, hurt and hate the fact that we haven't done Adelecki more in the green. And he was like, if it's not there on Monday morning, I'm going to be having words. So we had to make the promise. And uh, she, earned, she earned the right to be there. All right. That's this week's version of the Gillette Labs Performance Act. OTBAM's performance rankings with Gillette. OTB AM. The Sports Breakfast Show from Off the Ball. Right, four minutes past eight. We're turning to the hurling at the weekend. I'm delighted to say Sarah Donovan is with us. Sarah, good morning to you. How are you? I'm good, I'm good. I'm actually, I don't mean to upset anyone now this morning, lads, but we have only five weeks and six days left of this hurling championship. And, 12th, and, of July, 12th of June, yeah. 23rd of July. Yeah, what, and so uh, how do you actually feel about that? I'm getting withdrawal already. Mm-hmm. Like this, this microwave championship. Like when I when I actually said, "Oh my God, there's literally six weeks left," and then it's done until February. So you got to soak up every single minute of hurling between now and the end of July. It feels like maybe we could do with a few more games. Given mm-hmm. you know, there's been an avalanche of football uh, over the last couple of weeks. Everybody's complained about too much football, but maybe there's an in between where we get more of these games. Yeah, look, the likes of Wexford, Cork. Yeah, I suppose the shortened season for those those teams. There's a window here that, that could could be looked at next year in terms of the format. But right now, those games yesterday they didn't disappoint. Like, where, where do you start with Limerick and Clare? I, I suppose we talked um, when Limerick were overturned by Clare about the tackles, hooks, blocks count, right? Clare had won it, uh, 112 blocks to, to 102. And Limerick yesterday reversed the stats. 121 hooks, tackles, blocks to Clare's 109. Those stats were provided by Ray Boyne. He is on the money with this. The attitude of Limerick yesterday was pitch perfect. Um, and yet, right, we were talking about this earlier. Limerick don't feel as invincible as they have done in recent seasons. So while, look, the, the five in a row is such a big thing for them because it's history. And again, Chrissy O'Connor's talking about the great statisticians pointing out that there's now three of the Limerick lads who have six Munster titles and they're on their own at, um, at a level with that. I'm just going to get this exactly right. It's Hannon, Nicky Quaid and Graham Mulcahy, the first Limerick hurlers to win six Munster titles. Um, and he's now the joint most successful Munster captain of all time alongside Johnny Lahey from Tipperary. So this is a history-making team. And Oh, look, yeah, I, I was listening to Tommy the last night and he'd make the, the hair stand in the back of your neck about the history involved. And I had forgotten all of those, you know, all of those stats that he, that he was talking about last week. But I think you were talking about Alex Ferguson a while ago. The levels of ruthlessness that John Kiley has brought into this setup and the organisation to get that group of players to five in a row. It, it, it's something to it's, it's something that we really have to, I suppose, look back at at the end of the season and say, how has he organised it? That he's finding the foreign player at the exact right moment to do the exact right thing for Limerick, which, which is ultimately what Clare couldn't do yesterday. And we were a little bit concerned about the impact that Limerick were getting off the bench up to this point. It almost mm-hmm. felt like we'd been talking about their strength and depth but it hadn't quite delivered for them. And then, lo and behold, it's the younger players who do deliver down the stretch. Adam English, Cahill O'Neill. Tom Morrissey was taken off yesterday. He was shaking his head. He was he was frustrated coming off yesterday because I think he felt he was like, I'm not ready to come off here. Peter Duggan was the same on the Clare side, shaking his head going, this game isn't over for me. But John Kiley said, no, Cahill O'Neill's going in now. Cahill O'Neill delivers. David Reedy delivers. The ball that David Reedy was giving Aaron Gillan. 
you know, hmm. Aaron Gillan is obviously the superstar yesterday, but those players, Adam English, David Reedy, Cahill O'Neill, to deliver late in the game. That's that's the beauty or the, the excellence, the, the mystery of, of Paul Kinnerk and John Kiley. How are they doing this? When you hear later on, Sarah, that um, uh, Conor Cleary is going to be injured with that shoulder injury, obviously not enough time to recover. A uh, bit of a surprise that Cian Nolan was was maybe detailed with, with, with having to mark Aaron Gillan and it, it just didn't go to plan for Clare whatsoever. Gillan was outrageous. Um, maybe, as I was saying this morning, did Brian Lowen take too long to, to take uh, Cian Nolan off Gillan? Like, were there in-game decisions making that Clare got wrong? Yeah, I, I think I spoke about the Cork Clare game a couple of weeks ago and I thought that the masterstroke was bringing Shane Amore in when he did for Clare and that was the difference between Clare and Cork. So I was surprised that he held him for so long. I think when you have a player of Aaron Gillan's talent and you, you're asking somebody to mark him, which is what they were asking Keen Nolan to do yesterday, I think if he had been tasked with 30 minutes mm. and Shane Amore was coming in for the second 30 minutes and you have to be cynical here when you're playing a player of Aaron Gillan's quality. So you say you can afford three, four fouls here, Keen. At that point, at that juncture, when you've hit your max, we'll put Shane Amore in. He'll get three, four fouls before the referee has to make a decision. You're talking about possibly eight different times in, in the game where they can disrupt and stop Aaron Gillan from scoring between them. And, and that's where the naivety was there yesterday. Nolan would have worked to a point. And then it was Shane Amori coming in and doing the exact same job to disrupt Gillan. And the, he left him on too long. Like we we can talk about the positives of Limerick, but also like Claire, as we said this morning, like it might have left it behind them. You look at the, I think it was thirteen wide, six shots dropped short. So it was there for Claire. It was that period before half time when when Claire were on top, and you know Ryan Taylor's heading for goal. That's when you keep the scoreboard ticking over. That's that's when you tap on your scores. They'd have gone six clear. That would have been very comfortable. Mm. And it would have also settled them because in the second half, you'd uncharacteristic errors from Tony Kelly. You'd, you know, poor decision making. The likes of Dermot Ryan catches a massive ball in the first half. And instead of settling, he drives the ball wide. You know, that's, that gives the impetus to Limerick. That allows them to set up a counterattack. And I think when Claire look back on this game, it wasn't the late free that should have been awarded that lost them the game. It's all of the little mistakes in, in those 40, 50 minutes where they were at Limerick, but they just couldn't get over the line. Can I just go back to Limerick for a second, right? In terms of the rest of the season, and again, I was making the point about the history really to go, that this is actually something from them and their perspective that is, is, is done now. There's, there's two more games left for Limerick to in a different competition for them to refocus and there's time for them to deal with the injury issues that they had uh, and that's the big benefit and there's obviously also time for them to come down off that massive high from yesterday but the one thing that they will be thinking is that okay everybody's just getting a little bit closer this is all getting very uncomfortable single point victories in games against sides who in recent seasons they've been able to just touch off and hold off at arm's length and I, I suspect they will be a little bit concerned. The brains trust in Limerick and the analysts will be now thinking, OK, everybody's having a go off them and everybody's coming up with slightly different ways to cause them difficulties. And they're still great champions. That's like, obviously, they're still great champions. But will everybody else be waking up this morning going, OK, all right, yeah, well done, congratulations. Enjoy your, enjoy your celebrations there, lads. But we're coming for you. I don't think so. I think yesterday the team hit the form that will actually get them over the line, you know, come the 23rd of July. I can't see them being beaten now. That stat, that 121 tackles, hooks, blocks, that work rate that they managed to find to beat Clare yesterday, 
that that's only going to make them more confident. And, you know, Dennis Walsh spoke about them after the Cork match, sitting under the Mackey stand as a group, unified, 31 players. I had spoken a couple of weeks ago about them missing their opportunity, that legacy moment, because I genuinely couldn't see Tip doing what they did to Waterford. They were afforded a window to do this, to, to have this legacy moment, but it's only going to make them more confident. The decisions at the end, Sarah, uh, we, we have to talk about them. So Tony Kelly and then Adam Hogan uh, both look to be clearly fouled. Certainly the, the Tony Kelly one from uh, the, the challenge from Peter Casey was was uh, very, very heavy, you'd have to say. We actually have a clip here, I think, of um, Brian Lowen, so he was asked about it after the match. Uh, so here's uh, his view. Before we ask your view, here's what uh, Brian Lowen had to say about it afterwards. You played the last 30 seconds and maybe unlucky not to get a free? Yeah, yeah, we find it very hard to get those kind of frees. Um, um, yeah, so uh, that's, uh, that's disappointing. It's a frustrating, obviously a lot goes in, it comes down to fine margins always, especially in these type of games, that not getting those decisions. Yeah, sure, look, um, uh, what can you say? You know, um, yeah, it's frustrating, we'd have loved to have got a free, but we didn't. You went in at half-time, a goal up at that point, played really well in that first half. You were probably thinking at that point that you were happy enough where you were at. Yeah, we were happy enough at half-time. We probably could have gone in a little bit more ahead. You know, um, just before half-time, we were, we, were, um, uh, we were doing well and um, probably left a couple of scores uh, behind us. Um, so that's really the story of the game, really. We just left scores behind us. Yeah, a few wides and just some balls dropping short and that's probably, in the end, what cost it. Yeah, I think the, our stats lads, lads were telling us now that our shooting efficiency was only around 50% and theirs was approximately 70 So, you know, that's... Um, that's tough when you're playing the, the rain and All-Ireland champions five in a row now Munster champions you know the, the best in the game it's unbelievable to be up there and a point behind you know and obviously I've bet them up to now as well yeah well look um, sure look that's the nature of it like the um, yeah that's the standard that you want to get to um, and um, sure that's, that's it yeah. how do you regroup now after this Sure, we just go back and um, get our um, try and get our, our, our work done and prepare for the next day, um, whoever that's going to be. So um, we have two weeks to prepare, and uh, that's what we'll do. Yeah, he's heartbroken. He is. The thing that I would disagree with there is the first comment where he said we struggle to get those breaks. I think they got a couple of things against Cork. Um, I think Tim O'Mahony will feel aggrieved uh, about a one-up in the corner against Cork in the, say, that that game that they won by a point um, mm. there's no question that that was, that was a free, it should have been a free but if you're relying on that to get you you know, over the line, you can't be relying on the referee, you can't be looking for scores it was, it was the 12 shots dropped short or 12 shots wide, it was the 6 shots dropped short that's where the game was lost so and in fairness, there, yeah. well in fairness he, t- he did talk about the efficiency, uh, that was the, the first thing he went for when he was asked about that I, I look, when you're uh, when you're post-match and you're Brian Lowe and you are absolutely making sure that you're in the mind of the referee the next time a call is happening that you're going to get it and that's what all managers would do but just going back to last year Clare and Limerick drew in Ennis in the round robin they drew in the Munster final and goes to extra time and Limerick win by was it a point or two in the end uh, they beat them this year in the Gaelic rounds in the round robin and then they lose by a point at the end of the game like they're right there with the greatest hurling team second greatest hurling team of all time who are on the verge of becoming the greatest team, hurling team of all time I can see why you'd be heartbroken but at the same time it's right there for you come on recover 
Exactly. And I think yesterday, actually, uh, my brother was saying to me, he says, Sarah, I don't think that if Claire won yesterday that they'd beat them. They can't beat them three times in a year. He said, so maybe this is the best thing that happened to Claire. They've lost this, but they have a chance to go at them in the All-Ireland series. And and maybe he's right. Maybe you can't beat a team three times in one year or certainly Limerick. So maybe Claire is saving the best for last, but they have to improve in terms of their distribution. Cork, the Cork game, they had so much time and space to deliver the ball to the likes of Shane O'Donnell, the likes of Tony Kelly. And yesterday, Peter Duggan, Shane O'Donnell must have been so frustrated because you couldn't tell when the ball was going to be delivered. And that was the difference between Clare and Limerick yesterday. Every time the diagonal ball came into Galan, it was a gift. And that's the kind of distribution that you're talking about when, when you need to be, win big games like this. Clare have to get that right. They have the forwards. They just didn't have the delivery yesterday. Sometimes the difference can be small things, Sarah. I find... Uh certainly on, on, on this show we, we sometimes don't give credit to the goalkeepers Nicky Quaid probably deserves a little bit of a mention turns 34 today by the way uh, some vital saves that save from Rogers in the first half in particular um, but maybe sometimes they deserve a little more credit and Nicky Quaid is such a vital cog of this Limerick machine yeah, I think it was that big score with from Darrow Donovan. You know, it was the turnover and then he gives a razor pass to O'Donovan and O'Donovan points it from the sideline. I think if I'm being if I'm correct, that's exact that was the literally fifteen second passage that Quaid saw him into the hand, over the bar. It's not just his saves, it's it's that switched on looking for what those those non safe passes. You know, he's he was incredible again yesterday. Owen Murphy the same um, for Kilkenny but you need somebody with that razor sharp composure and, and that's quite happy birthday Nicky <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's go to the Leinster final um, it's it very very hard to know what to make of this either right like uh, so from let's start with Galway again so close to winning and so involved in the last minute where they will definitely rue every section of that passage of play where four or five players, in fairness, had the opportunity to prevent the winning score for Kilkenny. So, uh, how do you recover from this? You, you, you have, don't. You have, you have some experience <laughs> of this. You don't. Haunted, uh, seven years later, Parnell Park, Leinster Club final, playing Thomas Down of Kilkenny, up by a point, last 30 seconds of the game, our keeper bats the ball down, they react quickest to it. It's in the back of the net and it is over. There is no time to recover. And it still haunts me seven years later. I think Park Mannion, it'll be played on a reel. It was a, it was a really unfortunate, you know, obviously decision to make to try and boot the ball. And he puts it into the path of Killian Buckley. Now, Buckley had so much work to do to get to where he got to, to to put the ball at the back of the net. But again, it was that crazy attitude and work rate from Kilkenny that had them up in the corner, stuck into Galway, not letting them out. They had no right to get that goal and they got it. The devastation on Henry Shefflin's face after the match just summed it up. Uh, like I know he said he didn't know what to say to them afterwards, but and we were making the point earlier. Well, this is where you this is where you find out how good you are as a manager because that Galway team are right there in contention to win the All Ireland series. And again, this competition is over. Leinster, you've got to absolutely get over it. And yeah, so there is a pathway for them to get back to a very difficult pathway to get back to an All Ireland final and to win the competition. They're going to have to produce massive performances, but they're really it turns out very clearly capable of it. I still think, though, that it's 
it's probably to their detriment that Tipperary were so bad against Waterford because Tipperary have been licking the runes in the background now for the last three weeks. They're going to be coming into this game against Galway with a massive point to prove and they will be able to chip away at Galway. And I think it's the wrong game for Henry and Galway to get at this juncture after the way they've lost that game. It's consistency, isn't it, Sarah? That's a word that, that Liam, Shady, Liam Shady certainly used last night. It's just... Go like it's so hot and cold. You don't know what to expect off them, even within a game. You know they can have yeah. two quarters that are brilliant, separated, and then two quarters that are terrible. Um, so, like, how do you fix something like that? They went six-one up, then they were eight points down, then they went two points clear. Like the, it, I think though, if you're looking at the goals they conceded, the Mikey Butler goal, stunning goal, mm. but he wasn't tracked. You know. They switched off. He wasn't tracked. He punishes them. Um, Walter Walsh, like he's coming off the bench. Kilkenny scored 2-4 yesterday from their bench. Your plan A is your first 15. And Derek Ling had to manage yesterday with the injuries to Martin Keown early and the players that he brought in. To get 2-4 from your bench, your plan B is brilliant from Kilkenny. But there's a massive naivety there on Galway's part. Like To allow Walter Walsh to score to run 40 yards and, and not be tagged. At some point, somebody had to step in and, and, and they didn't do it yesterday. So defensively, Henry has a lot of work to do with Galway. I know for Galway fans and, and the coaching team as well, it'd be tough to take positives from a result like that, but Conor Whelan's performance certainly has to be one of them. Yeah, I think Jackie Terrell uh, suggested he was a one-trick pony and he's not. And it, it is down to the supply. We spoke at, during the league. Um, you'll remember second league game. I was incredibly frustrated with them in that they weren't able to deliver a ball. They didn't have a, a, a route to goal. And in fairness to Whelan, he was picking up breaks yesterday. It, it was kind of an old-fashioned style of game. There was a lot of loose ball. There was a lot of high batting. There was ball breaking and you know, he was on the breaks. Jason Flynn's goal was a stunning goal. There was positives, but they haven't fixed that problem either. There's a route to goal and they haven't found, I suppose, the most efficient way, route to goal. And the most efficient way is the Aaron Galanway lads. And other teams haven't managed to find that way yet or certainly haven't been able to impose that kind of style of hurling on their play yet. The difference between winning and losing, obviously, is you get the, the weeks off and you get a slightly handier route because you're, you're facing teams who are coming back from defeats. And, you know, we do expect that it will be Clare against Kilkenny in, in All-Ireland semi-final again, more than likely. Um, from Kilkenny's yeah. perspective, would they be happy or, like, would they, would they feel like, actually, you know what? I, I think from Clare's point of view, you'd have to say that those players that Clare have kind of managed to... I suppose, hold on to this year in the panel, the likes of Ryan Taylor, who didn't go that well yesterday, the likes of Mark Rogers, Aidan McCarthy didn't go well yesterday, but he will have better days. Like, you know, the quality is there. I think they'll be more excited about playing Kilkenny than Kilkenny will be playing Clare because I think that the pressure would be on Kilkenny more so than Clare. Kilkenny delivered last year, Clare did not. Um, you know, it, to have to beat a team that you've already beaten, I think is a harder thing to do. Although you do know that you're capable of just crushing them and like their spirit and their soul and wah, squeeze, you're gone. We did it last year, dear lads. We don't even difference, think about you. The difference is though, you'll see, I, I know we talked about the 2-4 off the bench from Kilkenny, but you're looking at the likes of Adrian Mullen, the likes of Richie Reid. There's the, that quality would have to come back into the Kilkenny panel to be able to get over the line against Clares and Limericks. I, I, I think, I, I just feel that 
there's a little inexperience there in the Kilkenny setup that when they meet the Munster teams, they're going to need. It's funny how the list of scorers when you look at a team um, can can be deceiving sometimes because Owen Cody only scored three points and I say only because it's from a total of 421 but every time he gets the ball Sarah, you feel like he's threatening and he's, he's trying to create something positive a brilliant performance I love Cody I think um, the lads on the hurling pad were, pod were chatting and I, I, we, I had asked them who would John Kiley put in his team and they reckoned Cody and Desi Hutchinson into the forwards line alongside Aaron Galan because of their what they offer around the square and how clinical they are around goal and he did the same again yesterday look his decision making is pitch perfect He's, that, that sorry the, the, the actual the, the kick away for the goal at the end like there's nothing in, in, in that moment a player can do differently is there like <laughs> Mannion probably is just do, thinking do, just, do you genuinely not like, there was ample opportunity to put that ball out over the sideline that's what I was going to ask you yeah. he could have actually he could have actually stood on the ball and fouled the ball and they would have had a free and they, you know, they could have only got a point out of a free. Mannion could have actually fouled the ball there. Even when the ball's uh, in the corner and it's the, the, there's that frantic, whatever it was, 30, 40 seconds of, of just nobody being able to, to gather the ball. Oh, I'd, I'd have fallen on the ball. I'd have laid on the ball. Yeah. I'd have probably picked the ball off the ground because you what you were giving them was an opportunity to only get one score and they needed two. Put it out for 65, possibly. Anything. Fall on the ball. L- literally. I mean... And, and, there's, there is four Galway lads in between Buckley and uh, the goal. Mm. So, you know, it did still require everybody else. I understand that one player kicks him the ball, but he's so far out and there is still plenty of room. Like, do uh, Look, I, it, it's, it's the Harry Ruddle goal. You know, it's, it's the Bally Gunner. It's the Bally Gunner goal. It, it will haunt Galway for the rest of their years, genuinely. But it was... I think it was meant to be, wasn't it? it was the satisfaction Brian Cody had in the stand afterwards, the big smiley head. Mm. <laughs> it was, look, Kilkenny deserved that. They, they deserved that win for, for the attitude that they showed and actually driving into Galway when the game was over. And you wish other teams had that same character, that same attitude. I, I just think that for Galway now, with Tip coming at them, they're hitting, they're hitting a point here, lads, where they're going to find it very hard to, to beat that tip team. Okay, let's let's just for a moment have a hypothetical situation where they do manage to get over Tipperary. Does that then give them the confidence to go on and say we we can perform in Croke Park? We 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 know that we are good enough. We also have managed to unlock the biggest tactical conundrum we had in uh, Conor Whelan, and so that that's the type of thing that should give them confidence. I don't think Galway are All Ireland champions based on the myriad of games we've seen in the last six or seven weeks they're not they're not the, the full package um, and it will be a big ask for, for Henry to get them to an All-Ireland final to win an All-Ireland final with the quality that's outside of uh, outside of the team Okay um, you, you did say you think that it's uh, going to be hard for anybody to beat Limerick at this point that they're going to get more confidence how close are Kilkenny to them? Based on the league final and Parky Keeve Obviously, the two the league and championship performances are pulled apart. But I, I genuinely think that Limerick are three to four points better than Kilkenny. Kilkenny right now, three to four points, no question. And say uh, Kilkenny reach an Ireland final and, and Adrian Mullins' thumb miraculously heals in the meantime, is that enough to get it back to a one point or two point game? Because let's face it, like Limerick aren't blowing anybody away at this stage. They're not. But the quality that they were able to bring into the setup yesterday. Uh, to be able to bring in Adam English, to be able to bring Carl O'Neill, David Reedy to give the performance that he gave. And you're still, 
there's still that ticking over where Garrod Hagerty, Morrissey, Seamus Flanagan, there's still so much hurling left in that group outside of those new players. It, it's only going to get better from Limerick from here. That's, that's all I can see is Limerick to the end. Were there any weaknesses from Limerick that you saw at the weekend? Um, I, I think that uh, without Sean Finn um, and I suppose with that, like Mark Rogers, that pace that mm. the, the ball comes off the post, um, he turns down Morrissey, you know, balls in the back of the net and the, the overlap, they were able to create Claire in terms of their pace and they were able to go at Limerick. Hannon at six, you know, obviously had to come off injured. Defensively, I would say that they are they're they're looking tired. They're they're that group that six that's coming to the end. There's more for, there's four more forward opportunities there than there is um, defensive opportunities for Limerick. So I would say pacier teams, cl- more clinical, more accurate teams will be able to cause Limerick hassle. But their forward play from Limerick is just exceptional right now. All right, Sarah, good stuff. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, lads. Sarah, do you want to give us thoughts on the uh, two big games yesterday? Here's some John Kiley talking about uh, Aaron Galan and Adam English. And it was a brilliant team performance, but I suppose Aaron Galan, 1-11 out there today, just immense. Yeah, I'm thrilled for Aaron. You know, Aaron is just a special player. And, you know, when you're taking those frees and when you're that inside man alongside Seamus, you know, the energy that they have to expound just to get free, to get to hit the spaces, timing their runs, repeating their runs, recycling their runs. And when the ball comes in, then trying to retain the ball under, the, you know, the, the toughest of pressure, you'd have to say, like, they did brilliantly inside there today. And, you know, Aaron, I think, in the second half, really did put his stamp on the game. You know, he was absolutely exceptional. So, thrilled for Aaron. He's a great, great guy. And, you know, I think he's getting better at every game as well, which is great to see. Declan Han- when he lifted the cup he said I hope that the supporters are enjoying the journey as much as all of you are it really is some journey that this Limerick team are on it is yeah it's a, it's a great one and you know I can tell you we've a lot of young pan- players on the panel at the moment as well and I only said to them on Friday night I'm very excited by the way they're playing at the moment I'm excited about the energy they have I'm excited about the skill set they have and I'm excited about the mentality that they have and you know they're waiting in the wings for one of these guys to slip up because they will like Adam English today you know his uncle unfortunately passed away yesterday morning and he comes along and does what he did today for the team you know uh, tremendous character and for a young player to come and do that in the most difficult of circumstances that was the most difficult game I think subs have ever gone on for us in the last six years and for them to go in and do what they did Cahill O'Neill himself you know all the lads that came on i just so proud of them yeah, John Kiley speaking with Ashing O'Reilly after Limerick's victory yesterday. It's bang on half past eight this morning. A reminder, OTBAM live with Gillette Labs. Get the ultimate shave or your money back. Neon Night Edition is available now. We're turning our attention back to the Champions League final. Delighted to say Martin Lipton is with us. Martin, good morning to you. How are you? I'm very well. How are you? Um, the, the response to Manchester City's treble is very different from my memory of the response to uh, Manchester United's treble. And maybe it's because the manner of the final in, in Barcelona was so spectacular but it's almost like this was expected and so people kind of had a lot of their thoughts preformed, and it does feel as if the asterisk of the charges that Manchester City are facing is is much more foregrounded in the response to and the analysis of the game than maybe would have been the case previously. What's your instinct about that? Why is, why is that the case? Or am I right about that? Well, I think it depends who you support as well. If you're a Manchester City fan, you think that's a complete nonsense. You just want to celebrate the triumph. Rival fans uh, and others will always point to it. It is a fact, whether we like it or not, whether City like it or not, more more pertinently, that they still face 115 charges from the Premier League. 
It's also a fact, I think, that we're unlikely to see any end of that process for three years. So people are going to have to get used to it. Um, but you're right. I think there is a, a degree of scepticism over the manner in which City have, have gone about their business off the field. At the same time, on the field, everyone recognises uh, how fantastic they are as a team. I mean, that was probably their, one of their worst performances of the season on Saturday night, uh, but they still won. And and I, as I said last time I was on the show, or certainly recently, you know, they won the treble the day they beat Real Madrid because they were that was, the, that was their last test and they passed it with flying colours. And in fact, they haven't really played very well since they beat Real Madrid. But over the season, they've been outstanding. At the same time, without question, fingers are and will continue to be pointed. In a weird way, and maybe it's not that weird, but as the success becomes more embedded, the conversation ratchets up in terms of the level of attention and scrutiny uh, that the Chargers are going to bring. And, and um, I do wonder sometimes if maybe there's a, an impact when... Um, so I was, I was trying to think of this in the, in the context of the European Super League and how, you know, if, if City had really had their way, ultimately, five or six years ago, there would have been a European Super League. But now the European champions are like, well, hang on, we're not, we're not going to... We've got to keep the, the, the importance of the European Cup. It's such, a, uh, such an important, historic, valuable thing. Um, and we end up talking about this instead of the football. It, it's quite funny. I mean, what I would say is that City were not one of the guiding forces of Super League. They were, when that came about two, two or so years ago, they were very much late adopters. Uh, both them and, and Chelsea were the last two to come in and also the first two to get out. At that point, of course, you, you, they were using the threat earlier than that as part of their legal case against UEFA because they just deploy the heavy artillery. I mean, you, you do fear that City would get a QC on, or cases. it is now, on you if you, you know, had a minor dispute about branding with the club. I mean, they don't they don't mess around. They go with the heavy artillery. Since the Super League debacle uh, and since the resolution of the case, what's really interesting is the bridges that have been built between UEFA and Manchester City. You wouldn't know that from the fans who are still turning their back on the anthem and booing it and all this sort of nonsense. At the highest level of the club, they're more embedded in, on in line with UEFA and the ECA, the European Club Association, now than they have ever been. Were you surprised by the by the um, nature of the performance itself, Martin? Given, well, I guess I guess given the pressure that's on the game, you can understand it. But I mean, the setup from City and and, and I guess the chances that Inter were allowed was that surprising? I think the surprise to me was to see Manchester City looking like a nervous football team, which we haven't done for a very long time. The weight of the previous failure, particularly the final against Chelsea, the pressure of expectation, the knowledge that if they lost, it would be they'd thrown it away and and they'd be to blame. And that was quite interesting because it, it definitely had an adverse impact on them. And the, the fear for everybody else is that the next time they play in a final, which could well be this time next year in, at, at Wembley, they'll have none of that and they'll just go out and splosh the opposition. But I also want to say how well Inter played. Mm. I think there's a bit, we may have known what Inter were going to do, but they did it extremely well. And I still, the first chance to hit the bar was a bit of a, of a freak, but I mean, it was a pressure. The, the Lukaku chance, he will, I'm sure, have nightmares about missing that because, to use the phrase, 
and I know that in an XG world it doesn't exist, but nevertheless, to lose the, use the phrase, he couldn't miss, and he did. So you're putting it down, uh, someone in the comments, uh, quite harshly, I thought, this morning said to us, is Lukaku the worst centre-forward to ever play in a Champions League final? <laughs> but I mean, like Chris Sutton said it was a horrendous miss, but then other, others were given a little bit of credit to Onana in goals. What, where do you stand? A horrendous? Oh, it, just hit, it just hit Edison. He had no idea. Uh, and it, it hit him so quickly that it came back and hit Ruben Diaz and nearly went in as an own goal. I mean, it was one of those where anywhere else he scores, all he has to do, he's got he's got the whole goal to aim at, and he missed it. And it's a real, real disappointment. You do feel that if Jacko still been on the pitch, it probably would have gone in. Uh, what I would say is actually when Lukaku came on, he caused them more threat than anyone else had in the entire match. To be honest, I thought he actually, apart from his finishing being shocking, he, he did made all the runs he needed to make. Um, and it was a shame for him because I think they, uh, while City have been the dominant team, the three dominant team in uh, in European football this season and beyond that, and they've finally proven it, Inter deserved extra time on, on Saturday night. And their fans were incredible. Like, uh, really, the the atmosphere pre-game and the, the stadium is so big and the pitch is so far away, it's difficult for anybody to create that. But the Inter fans were, were really there and the team seemed to feed off that and they grew into the game and, and they they went about their task in a way that I thought was interesting. And, and I, I so a lot of the papers um, are talking about some of the players saying, we're going to go on now and build a dynasty. And that's what players do in the aftermath of something like this. But um, it does feel as if teams are able to thwart City in a way uh, more often the games are closer it feels a little bit now as um, as uh, the big brains in European football start to go about trying to tackle Manchester City yeah but they have to find a way and you, you look at that game on Saturday and yes Inter did really really well but Manchester City's best player went on the pitch not fit and lasted half an hour. Um, so a fit, fully fit Kevin De Bruyne changes the game. Uh, let's hope for him that this hamstring injury tear or rupture, whatever it might be, he can be fixed. He comes back really, really strong next season. They will also, because they can, get some more players in to have more options. City are, have moved and evolved each season under Guardiola. So they'll move and evolve again. The difference being now that they move and evolve from a position of strength. They've achieved everything. So the question now is, do those players have the motivation to start the climb again, having already climbed the biggest peak once? Well, the manager will make sure they do. And and anyone who doesn't um, live up to his expectations will not be at the club. I mean, that's what happens. Look, at if you're Cancelo, who forced your way out of the club to go and play for Bayern Munich and nearly... And did was part, but only a bit part of a team that just about hung on for another dull, boring, inevitable Bundesliga crown. Did you really make the right move in January? I mean, it's a, it's a cautionary warning there. For all that um, Zinchenko and Gabriel Jesus were fantastic parts of Arsenal's season, had they stayed at City, they'd now be treble winners rather than we came second winners. Um there's a bit of that in, in you know, the players' uh, mentality will be will be key. But, yes, the best coaches will look at City and think, right, well, Rudiger managed to neutralise Haaland. Serbi did to an extent, to a good extent, actually, on Saturday. If you can be physical and aggressive against Haaland and neutralise him, 
that takes a lot of their threat out of the way. Then can we hurt them? Well, probably, possibly we can. Do we actually see what's been a massive strength of City this season, which is John Stones coming into midfield? There's something you can actually exploit, find a way to take advantage of that. All of these things, this is what the elite coaches do. And in the Premier League and in Europe, they will be studying the videos and trying to work out a way. And one or two of them, I'm sure, will find a way in the odd game. The question is, can others deliver the way of stopping them game after game after game? And that's very difficult because of the relentlessness of the way they play. But a lot of what they what have been great about City this season has been Gundogan um, and Bernardo Silva. Now, neither of them may be at the club next season. Everything changes. Constant evolution. Yeah, that's why I, I'm, I'm not penciling them in for a dynasty. A lot does depend on who actually fetches up next season. Plus, maybe we haven't quite seen the development of somebody like Phil Foden into the player that we know he can be or could be. So maybe that's a reason to say, OK, that's, that's a plus as opposed to a, a negative, that actually there's still plenty of room for growth for Foden to become a more dominant player. Well, I thought that Foden did really well when he came on, uh, particularly in the second half. He was making those runs in behind, wasn't he? Three or four times he gets in there. Uh, he's not had a great season. That's pretty clear. Um, I think he may have picked up an injury at the World Cup. He, he certainly hasn't been, hasn't, hasn't been as influential since he came back from, from Qatar. He didn't really do what England were looking him to do in Qatar. But he's still a very young boy. And as you know, players' development isn't necessarily a, a consistent arc. It can be up and down. And you have a good season, a bad season, you come again. I don't think he's had, he'll feel devastated by the season. He will feel, I could have done better. But then he'll look at the medals around his chest and think, well, this is all right, I can do better. Would you have said this time last year that Jack Grealish would become a, a starting, absolute stick-on starter in the first eleven? No. In fact, this time last year, you were wondering if they made an almighty mess uh, on Jack Grealish and might look to bin him in the summer. Things can change very quickly. Martin, in your learned football opinion, who is the better football manager, Alex Ferguson or Pep Guardiola? Ferguson stands the test of time. Ferguson achieved at two very different clubs. But Ferguson didn't reinvent football. And when you see what Guardiola has done and continues to do, his legacy may last for longer. I think it will. Ferguson's must never be forgotten. And interesting that one of the first people... Guardiola was talking about was Ferguson and not in a negative oh I've done better than him as in he's someone I, I respect hugely and they do respect each other hugely but Guardiola's ability to transform teams to transform players and also to win under expect pressure of expectations I think you've got to give him the edge on it yeah there is the point as well what happens after the treble and, and the point was made in the, in the Guardian as well that there were missteps uh, and mistakes made by Ferguson and, and United in the year or two after the treble year so that's something that Guardiola will of course look to it, it gives him the motivation to, to I guess achieve the next thing Well look I've always felt that he wanted to win the league in all five major countries and he's done three so at some point, he's going to want to leave to go and win the, the title in Italy, probably with Juventus or Inter, uh, and in France, which therefore means PSG, just so he can be the first to win the title in all five countries. 
Uh, he didn't win the Champions League with Bayern, and that was seen as a black mark against him. Uh, so he'll, he'll know that he needs to, to, to evolve. I just wonder how long he'll want to stay at City because of that thirst for something new and fresh. I mean, you know, he'll never be satisfied. He, he wouldn't be satisfied if the opposition never touched the ball in a game, even though they have to touch it at least once for kickoff. But, you know, he would, um, he wants 100% possession, which isn't possible. And he's always trying to actually achieve the impossible. That's his dream. Um, so there may come a point when he just wants something different, but he will not allow himself to settle on his laws at City. It's just not in his nature. As the season went on, he seemed to trust the squad depth less and less that he settled on his first team and very unpep like didn't make changes, didn't overthink it, was like, okay, I know exactly what my team is going to be. The shape changed a little bit, but not much. And the essentially back four of centre-backs with obviously Stones playing in midfield as an auxiliary midfielder, um, he settled on that kind of post-World Cup and then didn't really change. Players like Riyad Mahrez, who've been so important over the last few seasons, didn't really seem to get a look in when the when push came to shove in, in the big games. Does this suggest that maybe the city strength and depth thing isn't in Pep's mind, and that's the important part of this, in Pep's mind as clear as it would be to us mere mortals outside? Well, the, the, I think the argument would be he does what he does in the first half of the season so he can do what he wants to do in the second half of the season. Uh, and therefore, it will be the same next year. And you wouldn't be shocked to see City being six or seven points off the league at, off the lead at Christmas and winning their group quite comfortably because he rotates more at the start. And then when it comes to the, the crunch, he goes back to what he knows works. Albeit, you know, you wouldn't have seen John Stones in central midfield at any point before it happened. Uh, and I think perhaps he learns from his own errors. Um, you know, that... Champions League final against Chelsea when he completely messed it up. No question. He remembered that and was determined not to make those mistakes again. I think it helps if you know you've got the best squad of players, which he has, um, even more so when you know you've got a centre-forward who score your 35 goals even if he touches the ball 36 times in the entire season. Um, it is That is obviously a slight over-exaggeration. Not much, though. We get it, yeah. yeah. Um, So, I I think what you will see is a similar pattern, that he'll be much more willing to try things and to trust a a, a bigger coterie of players in the opening half of the campaign. And then let's see where we are in February, March, when it starts to matter. Uh, John Stones, um, Martin, deserves a particular conversation because he's just been remarkable. The Times, I think, described him as the Barnsley Busquets. He's just become a remarkable uh, part of this city machine and, and just every single big game seemed to put in a big performance. Yeah, he's been absolutely outstanding. Uh, look, we've always known he was, there was a player there. And at times, he's had difficult times. He's not always been smooth at all. He's you know, been out of the team at City. Uh, struggling in, you know, the, you, the many times you'd have thought in recent seasons, well, he, he's actually third or fourth choice centre half at the club, um, and now he's found this position or been developed into a position which only a genius would have seen in and that's Guardiola. Because let's be honest, there is not another manager in the world who just said, looked at John Stones and said, yeah, he's going to be my supreme player in central midfield. Now, you know, it, 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 it isn't conceivable, and yet. That's what's happened, and he's been fabulous. 
And, you know, confidence on the ball is remarkable. The sense of purpose when he gets delivery, the trust that the other players have in him is a, a, a testament to what he, what he does. In a team of superstars, they want him to have the ball. Now, that's not a bad thing for a converted centre-half, is it? His dribbling ability the other night was um, something that I hadn't quite realised was as high-end as it was against Inter. I don't know, maybe, maybe it was the occasion and, and it was the adrenaline, but if he can add that to his game, it's quite remarkable. Well, we've been seeing signs of it over the last few months, haven't we, that there's, there's something special there. And he seems to have a calmness and clarity in possession. Uh, maybe that comes from all those years of playing as a centre-half and often having time to make the ball forward. It's just, you know, it's developed within him a, a sense of certainty and poise. Uh, and if you can keep that clarity of thought amidst the maelstrom of, of midfield, then you've already got two yards of, of advantage over your opponent. Ruben Diaz as well, like his performance stepped up a notch again and um, probably the best player after Stones? Yeah, I would, I would say he was excellent, yes. I mean, he had to be because he was under a bit of pressure. Uh, it's, it's indicative of that, you know, they didn't play great uh, as a team and yet, you know, the goalkeeper was as nervous as, a, as anyone. I think that actually added to their sense of anxiety. The first 20 minutes, every time Ed- Edison got the ball, every City fan had palpitations and yet he's normally the, one of the calmer players. Um you, but you're right, Diaz was, was once again excellent and he has been all season, has become a critical part of that of that side. Um, I didn't think Grealish had a bad game, but he's been really damning of himself. I think obviously De Bruyne wasn't as good as he might be because of the injuries. Holland has been more effective out of the games. You could go through lots of them, but the key thing is they found a way to win. And again, even without playing well. You were, and so many times, you know, it's one defeat in the last twenty-eight, <laughs> and that was in a game that didn't matter at, at, at Brentford when the title had already been presented. Um, they found the ability to do what they had to do when it mattered most, and that's a priceless asset for any team. You were rightly complimentary of Inter's performance uh, earlier, Martin. Um, was this a flash in the pan? European season for them or can they push on next season because I guess they even have a gap domestically on, on, on Napoli to close I think that they put a lot of investment in doing well in, in Europe they hadn't done for quite some time uh, and they were in another tough group and they've had a really series of, of really difficult draws over the last few years you know remember the, the season that, that they were in the group of Spurs and Barcelona and you know that's how and every season it seems they get a tough one uh, and this time they just about, you know, they got through and then suddenly they found a bit of, of belief. Um, but they've also got to deal with one of what one would assume a, a different sort of Juventus. Napoli were excellent, but of course Napoli have lost their manager, so we don't know what they'll be like next season. They may sell players because De Laurentiis might feel the need to cash in. Um, and other teams, Milan as well, Lazio had a good season. You know, Lazio in the Champions League next season. Um, it, it actually looks like it might be quite a competitive league. They will want to go deep again. They've lost that sense of fear that they had in Europe. That's uh, They had a bit of a, of a negativity factor when they played in the Champions League over a number of seasons, ever, almost ever since the Benitez team that, that struggled in, uh, in defending the title um, in 2010-11. Um, and so, therefore, that has now dissipated. Uh, but... 
it's so tough. You know, you could pick 10 teams now, who all, all of whom would expect to be in the last eight, and that's not possible. Um, would Inter be in that 10? Not necessarily sure. They certainly think they should be in the last last 16. They wouldn't say they should be in the last eight. But there are quite a lot of others who, who will. You know, there's two in Spain, there's one in France, there's one in Germany. There'll be two or three in England plus plus others. Martin, good stuff. We'll leave it there. Thanks a million. Cheers. Cheers. Bye-bye. It's Martin Lipton giving us his thoughts on the Champions League final. Uh, if you want to get in touch, 0879-180-180 is the WhatsApp number or you can leave a comment at Off the Ball AM on Twitter or on youtube.com forward slash Off the Ball and we're live every morning with Gillette Labs got the ultimate shave. Are your money back neon night editions available now? Are you saying that they're on the verge of becoming a, a dynasty? Like, it feels like it. I, I certainly feel like they're, they are going to be the Premier League champions for the next couple of years, two or three seasons. It's hard to see anyone like if that great Liverpool team could get 99 points and still not win a title um, I just can't see an Arsenal pushing on enough I can't see Liverpool or Manchester United pushing on enough I can see Liverpool I think um, you know I thought Liverpool's end of the season the, they've they've got strength and depth in the front three um, they've seemed to have worked out what to do with Trent like that was their big conundrum and they seem to have got to a point where okay they've evolved so I could see them being back next season there's still results at the end of that season with Liverpool where you're like they're pushing for top four and they're they're dropping points in games that they can't afford to. I think they were exhausted at that point. Possibly, but, yeah. You know, signing Alexis is, is a good signing. You know, I don't think it's transformative. Uh, but we'll see, mm. but it seems that they've got good value, and so they they could go and add more. I don't know. I don't know enough about Tour to see to know what kind of impact he's going to have on the side. But and Chelsea, like the, <laughs> I don't know what Pochettino's going to do. But Chelsea have two biggest squad. Uh, maybe he's the man to manage that and then Spurs with Ange Postacoglu is interesting I think it might again take him a, a season or two to yeah. bid that in top six top six would be the target yeah for sure um, he'll probably think that he can get Champions League football and that'll be the target Daniel Levy sets to him But so look you, you would expect Manchester City will be able to be back in the quarterfinal semi-final of the Champions League in relative rude health next season but it, it does I think a lot does depend on De Bruyne recovering his fitness and like bear in mind he's, he's 32 turning 33 mm. is that right? Um, so if you if you take Gundogan out of the side, which looks likely at this point, there's a um, massive offers coming in from all around the world for him. I don't think he's quite ready to go to Saudi Arabia, but maybe 88 or 100 million over two seasons changes your mind. I look at the money N'Golo Kante is getting for for unbelievable. Uh, uh, De Bruyne is 32 in a fortnight, right? So he's still got a bit of time, but I mean, if he looks after himself, and yeah, how he recovers from this injury is going to be fairly key. They'll want to start next season. Uh, fairly well but so uh, it does look like Mares is going to leave and it looks like uh, Laporte's going to leave now they will re- replace them so you know Kovacic looks like he's coming in and um, he's, a, he's an excellent midfielder and somebody who they would you assume they would trust and who knows like does Calvin Phillips leave or does Calvin Phillips become the next Manchester City player who takes 18 months to get a game and then suddenly is really good I don't know so I'm not, I'm not writing them off but I just I'm not penciling them in for like three Champions Leagues in a row here no, but I, I feel like, sorry, when I say dynasty, I, I mean like three Champions League in the next five, six, seven years. I think that's still a, an era. Oh, totally, yeah, if they, if they were to do that, yeah. But um, I don't know if Pep's going to be around. I don't know if, uh, are they playing championship football for one of those seasons? Who knows? Mm. Uh, right, Talton Cup quarterfinal draw has been made. It's Antrim versus Carlo, Meath versus Wexford, Limerick versus Leash, and Cavan versus Down. So Calvin Down is obviously the pick 
of the quarterfinals with both sides thinking that they were going to win this thing and uh, after that you pays your money you takes your choice I'm sickened I, I, I really was hoping for a Cavan down Tottenham Cup final that was the, the juicy one um, well Andrew Mead is obviously the juicy true yeah well yeah of course with Andy McIntyre perspective and they've avoided each other for now so that'll be interesting uh, home advantage of course for Antrim, Meath, Limerick and Cavan because they top their groups those games next weekend fixture details will be confirmed by the CCCC later today um, like if, if, if I, you'd expect the group winners in those games to come through so Antrim will fancy themselves against Carlo uh, Meath will fancy themselves against Wexford and, and, and the, the two games Limerick and Leash I think Billy Sheehan like would expect like they went up to Brewster Park in a skill at the weekend and had a really good result against Fermanagh, a good Fermanagh team. So they'll they'll go to Limerick with hope and expectations. Uh, the Cavan down one I can't really call. Like the fact that it's in Breffney Park nudges it towards Cavan, but I, I did say Down would win the Tottenham Cup this year, so I'm going to have to stick with that. All right. Uh, a reminder: OTUAM live with Gillette Labs. Get the ultimate shaver. Your money back. Neon Art Edition is available now. And uh, Brayburn Coffee is the official coffee partner of Off the Ball. It's coming to an Apple Green store near you. New Brayburn locations are popping up. Every month, visit applegreenstores.com forward slash Brayburn to find your nearest Brayburn coffee experience. And you can enter our competition by following us on Twitter. And um, there are vouchers to uh, be won. Now, we're turning our attention uh, back to football. I'm delighted to say Karen Duggan is with us. Karen, good morning to you. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Yeah, pretty good. Um, uh, quite a long mid-season break for people not involved in the World Cup squad. So, um, is this a chance for everybody to recharge their batteries and... and uh, consider where they are or is it like ah oh, Jesus the football was just getting good um, a bit of both because we've had a pretty good run into the break but we're also starting to pick up a few niggles so um, in one way it's good that we have a bit of a break but in other ways like we don't want to lose the momentum that we have built up over the last three or four games um, but we do have that All-Ireland kind of cup to keep us ticking over um, and to give more players game time that possibly didn't get as much as they would have liked in the first half of the season because all of our games seemed to be really tight so we couldn't make too many subs unfortunately uh, The World Cup squad and the, and the players who are going away for the World Cup squad obviously um, that's their main focus but for for you and um, the players who are in the All-Ireland Cup like how beneficial do you think that's going to be to broadening the player base generally across the league here not just specifically for P-Mount but to, to give people that opportunity to get into squads and show to management teams that actually in the second half of the season they can have a significant impact Yeah I think it's a, a really good idea um, it's kind of like all county leagues that you play with GAA where the county players can't play and it, it always does bring people up to speed um, because it's such a long season and such, there's no way you're going to have the same starting team from start to finish in a season like that. So you're going to depend on your squad. And to be able to give them game time at senior level, um, it's really, really good. Like we have to go to Rovers again next week and we'll probably play a different team to what we did this weekend. But that'll be a great experience for everyone, like senior game in Tala, um, up to the speed. And yeah, I, th- I think it's a really good idea considering obviously we do have the big break for the World Cup two months off would have been too much it would have been almost like going back into pre-season after two months so um, I think it's really really good for for everyone's squad and yeah people might take their opportunity and, and break into starting teams which is is great as well Record attendance uh, at the weekend for that game Karen like I'm sure for, for the more experienced players like yourself it's a little easier to deal with the pressure of that but I guess for the younger players in the team it's I'm sure it's it's quite a lot to deal with 
I don't think um, the younger players get phased by too much from what I've seen anyway with their ones. Nothing seems to phase them. But um, I'll say fair play to Rovers. They really did a lot of marketing for that game, brought in a lot of young girls teams. And it really did make for a really good atmosphere because it was quite a, a tense match. You know, it wasn't a huge amount of chances. But like when you do have a crowd, it sounds cliche, but like they do kind of give you a little bit more energy um, and get you kind of over the line in the end. So um, it was a great occasion. And to be like, the attendances have been breaking kind of every week between Bose and, and Shamrock Rovers. So um, long way at last, I suppose. Tara O'Hanlon is one of those young players that, that I guess we have to mention. I think she's going into the relief insert this morning uh, and then joining the Ireland camp afterwards, which is uh, pretty incredible when you think about it. Uh, Tara is a special player. i I was kind of speaking with a few people over the weekend about Tara and for me, probably the most raw talent we've seen in the league since Katie McCabe. Um, And she's really mature and she has her head screwed on and she put in another phenomenal performance at at the weekend up against another kind of senior international. She was up against internationals on their side. So um, she kind of shows that she is kind of already at that level. So I've no fear of Tara going into that camp with Vera Pound and making a claim for one of those spots on the plane. Really? Like actual spot on the plane as opposed to just the pre-tournament training camp? I don't see why not. I think that that left wing position suits her brilliantly. Um, she's a natural left footer. Um, and well, if, if you need cover for Megan Campbell rather than putting Katie McCabe back, left wing back, I think Tara is next in line. Um, but again, I, I'm seeing her, I suppose, in at Women's National League level. Um, it might be a different story when they get into camp. But from what I've seen, I think she she's certainly in with a chance. She's not there to make up the numbers. That is interesting. Uh, do you feel like Vera Pau is open to a bolter at this stage? Because she has said she is, and she has been casting around literally the entire globe to try and find players who might be able to make an impact. So it's not beyond the bounds of possibility, is it? I don't think it is because otherwise I think you would have just named your 23 and brought in training players um, because it's harder to be in a squad and now you're potentially going to be dropped for the Australia flight. Um, So that's not going to be an easy conversation. The easy way out for Vera would have been to just name her 23 and have it all done and have those conversations and just have the girls on standby. But the fact that the squad isn't finalised I think it has to mean that she doesn't have her mind fully made up on who's coming and she's going to give the girls an opportunity in this camp to make an impression. Is it tough, Karen, for for women's National League teams to hold on to players like Tara O'Hanlon? Because I guess when you're making comparisons with Katie McCabe, for example, the the obvious, I guess, conclusion is going to be that at some stage she might move across to England and and, and maybe get an opportunity there. But, But I guess the desire from the women's National League teams is to hold on to those players. I think we're very realistic when it comes to that. Um, we know that if we produce a player of that quality, that at some point we they will go to a professional league. And that's just the reality of it because they've said it for many years now, in order to make the Irish team, you kind of have to be playing at that professional level. And that's what these girls want to do. They want to play for their country and they're going to do everything they can in order to do that. And realistically, the best way to do that now is to, is to go professional um, because we can't offer that in Ireland. So, yeah, it's, it's not something that is great, obviously, in terms of the league, but it's realistic that we can't hold on to players um, 
and for them to continue to progress their career in the way that they want to while we're a, a, an amateur league. Um, so we kind of just see it as a, almost a badge of honour sending the girls off to professional leagues now because obviously you feel like you've played a part in, in their career and what they can go on to do and you're very proud of them when they do go away. But obviously it does dilute the talent in the league then somewhat and people are starting to go away sooner and sooner now. Um, I wish there was a an under-21 Ireland team or something like mm. that where we kind of keep players in Ireland until they're that 21, 22 and they're matured and then they have a real good chance of, of making it when they go away and um, have a development path there while they're getting their education. But I think, again, that's probably something that's really far down the line. But I do think that that key age group is that kind of 19, 20 and there's a big drop off there. Um, and if we had a way to kind of develop those in Ireland, um, I think that would be really, really beneficial in the long run, both for Irish League and for the girls themselves. Yeah, and at the same time, the benefit for an 18-year-old to go full-time in a setup in the UK or America, you know, that that quality of coaching that they're going to be able to get and that full-time adherence to strength and conditioning and um, coaching and tactical and technical work, that's when you can make the, the big leap as well. So it's just finding that balance between players who are ready to go and those who actually would benefit from maturing a little bit for a couple of years. Yeah, um, and the WSL, like the top league in England, is becoming like the real powerhouse of, of women's football internationally. And it's going to be like the men where Irish girls are going to find it harder and harder to make it in the WSL. So they might have to look to go second division or possibly into Europe somewhere. And I just think that they'd be more ready for that transition if they were that little bit older or potentially if they had those couple of years, they'd find the transition to the WSL a little bit easier. Um, so who knows what will happen, but it's great to see the amount of girls that we are sending away and, and the amount of talent that we are producing in this country that can compete at the highest level. Am I right in saying, Karen, that your housemate is Amanda Budden, the Rovers keeper? You are correct, yeah. <laughs> What's that like after a match like that? It's grand, honestly. We just kind of laugh it off. Um, she probably is better at laughing things off than I am, to be fair. But uh, no, it's, it's grand. We, we don't actually talk about it that much. We'll wind each other up a little bit, but it's all kind of like in good spirits, you know. Because match, was it, I don't know, was it last season or season before? Nil-nil draw. She saves a penalty from you. Oh, that and was then, this season. Was that this season? So, like, what's what's that like in the in the couple of days afterwards in the house? Um, grand for her. <laughs> uh, no, it was fine. I mean, it was our other housemate's birthday. We just went out that night, and that was it. Like, you, you don't talk about it. She knew that I was obviously really upset about it, so she she gave me jibes if if it was uh, a bit of crack. But I I took that that one quite hard. Um, so she kind of left me alone after that one. Funny, you can yeah, you can pick up pick up the secrets. Maybe a bit of practice in the back garden. See what way she usually moves. No, I think she picked up what way I usually right. go in my head. She absolutely got in my head. To be fair to her, she, so um, I took myself off penalties at the weekend just in case we got one. I was like, I'm not I'm not going through that again. <laughs> uh, the the goal from Saif Doyle, uh, another player who's really making moves as well. Um, like just one of those games where you felt it could peter out to a nil nil, but but the goal is obviously the bonus. Yeah, I think realistically we probably would have been happy with the draw given the way the match was gone. Um, they did have a lot of possession, but neither team really created all that much. I think they had one chance, we had one chance, and we just took ours, and, and fortunately theirs went over the bar. Um, but other than that, I think the two keepers were pretty quiet, so it did kind of have nil all 
written all over it. Um, and it might have been a fair result, but it's kind of been a feature of us this season that we've kind of kept going and, and ground out wins. Like we haven't won any matches by big scores, top of the league or bottom of the league, but we've been man- managing to kind of grind out important wins. Um, and that was a huge one for us because, like I said, we're going into the break now. We come back and there's seven games left in the season. So we've got 13 games, hard shift put in the first half of the season. Um, so it's great to be in the position that we are. Uh, and that was a really, really important win because Rovers are really good ball playing side um, really good defensively as well so they only gave us one opportunity and thankfully we took it On balance what's your feeling now about how good or otherwise Rovers are for the league because obviously when they came in and started signing everybody there was um, rumblings of discontent I suppose is a, a fair way of putting it I mean Rovers uh, we uh, Rovers and Shells are the teams that we've dropped points against this season and I think they're both going to be in contention after the break as well. Um, from a P-man point of view, we'll be kind of hoping that teams start taking points off each other around us to to maybe help us out a bit. Um, no one's going to want to do each other too many favours, but I do think that themselves and, and potentially even Bose will still feel like after the mid-season break that it's all to play for. Um, obviously, as a P-man player, I'm emotionally scared by the year we only needed two points from two games and couldn't do it, so... Um, there's definitely no one getting ahead of themselves because obviously we've seen the talent that Shells have nicked a title off us before and Rovers, they don't lose games. Like that was their first um, loss of the season after 13 games for a brand new team. Like That's really impressive to come in and do what they've done. Um, so yeah, I think it'll be, be interesting. I was talking earlier about the bottling, Manchester City bottling, the the defeats, the knockout Champions League defeats in, in the last number of years, and and use, utilizing that, like that that dramatic final day against Shelburne uh, in 2021. Like, you, have you been able to bottle that and use it in a positive sense? No, nothing <laughs> positive from that ever. <laughs> right. No, um, no, but this year it feels very different. This year because obviously Rovers did come into the league, and obviously there was a lot of movement around the league, and it. I think everyone feels like this year was a bit of a fresh start because of that. So um, maybe we've learned a little bit of resilience from that and we've we've maybe grown a bit more bottles since then. But I don't think it's it's from that. I think it's just generally the attitude of the girls who've come into the squad and the young girls who are stepping up because everyone's just really, really competitive at training. Everyone's really working hard for each other. Um, really nice group of girls. So um, we don't really reference that because again trauma but um, no it's it's a different field I think this year Well enjoy the break uh, it's not really a break but obviously it's uh, an official break from the league and um, we'll talk to you again in plenty of time to uh, start the build up to the World Cup Does it, is it, has it begun to feel like the build up to the World Cup has kicked off? Not as much as I would have thought but, but I think maybe now that the girls are going into camp today that they'll we'll start seeing more of them together as a group and um, they'll be based obviously in Ireland and it'll, it'll, we'll maybe start seeing more in the media, more interaction with them and, and grow the hype around it. Um, obviously, you don't want to start the hype too soon either and, and get World Cup fatigue, but it's such a special year for women's football. Like, in my opinion, the more we see of it, the better. So um, hopefully there is a big bounce now and people start uh, writing about it, talking about it, getting interviews with the girls and stuff like that. Um 
obviously Vera wants to keep them very concentrated in camp, especially if she really doesn't have her mind made up on who's on that final flight. So, um, yeah, interesting couple of weeks ahead to see how yeah. that this training camp goes. Yeah, a few tricky conversations to be had with that. All right. Karen, good stuff. Thanks a million for joining us. Cheers. Yes, uh, Karen Duggan there of course you can hear on the Koigig podcast every week as well it's 11 minutes past 9 this morning uh, OTBIM with Gillette Labs got the ultimate shape or your money back Neon Night Edition is available now um, obviously they, we'll start seeing those press conferences I think the team in their Ireland gear at training is going to be the thing that reminds everybody oh, we can start uh, we can start our official World Cup build up uh, here is some stuff for you to look at on the OTB podcast network today Keith Tracy was talking about the Champions League final Tommy Walsh in pretty good form in the aftermath of the Kilkenny Galway game and James O'Connor was covering Limerick against Clare for us all of that available wherever you get your podcasts after the break uh, we are going to hear from Carl Dennehy talking about the Rashida Adelecki hype train which is uh, officially uh, up and running um, it's a uh, TGV at this point Top pocket goal ahead of this summer's football in Australia we we're going to Australia it's what dreams are made of. We'll be hosting a night of celebration for the Republic of Ireland women's national team in partnership with Sky, and it's coming your way on June 28th in the Mansion House in Dublin. What a moment for the Republic of Ireland. We'll be joined by the full squad. I don't know what we've just done. You know, I did believe we could do it. As well as some other great guests as we give the team a night to remember. Emma Bird is in tears. <laughs> I can't believe it. We've finally done it. Tune in to all of Off The Ball's channels for a chance to win tickets to this exclusive event Sky proud primary partners of the Republic of Ireland women's national team out believe together and we can go anywhere they are going to the world cup finals OCB AM with Gillette Labs get the ultimate shave or your money back neon night edition available now right it's uh, 14 minutes past 9 we're turning our attention to athletics and basically one of the biggest stories in Irish sport over the course of the weekend it's Rashida Adelecki becoming the first Irish sprinter to win an NCAA title uh, Carl Denny good morning to you how are you good morning good Ger. how are you um, give us a little bit of context for this will you because I think people are kind of trying to grapple with uh, exactly how big an achievement, how fast a time and how globally important this is? Uh, I'd say it's huge on every front you just mentioned. Um, 49.20 is a time that would have placed her second in the last Olympic final. It would have placed her second in the last world final in Oregon. Now, there's a bit of context there in terms of as we look to the future, the level is going up in the women's 400. And I think in the next world final in August and in the next Olympic final next August, it's going to take more than 49.20 to get on a podium. However, there's no denying how huge this is for Irish athletics and even for Irish sport. Um, No Irish sprinter has ever won an NCAA title. You know, traditionally, the best athletes we sent to the US were always middle distance runners. And those are the athletes who kind of succeeded, I suppose, through the 70s, 80s, 90s. We've had nine NCAA champions in the past. Um, all middle distance runners, I think besides one, one hammer thrower. Um, the likes of Eamon Coughlin, Sonia Sullivan have won NCAA titles, but we've never had a sprinter win any medal. We've never had a sprinter go over there and get close. And Rashida has not just gone over there and got close. She's gone over there and conquered the US collegiate scene at 400 metres. It's a time that's number three in the world this year. And when you, you know, 49.20, you're talking, she's only currently two or three metres off the best in the world, which is Marilady Paulino, who's winning Diamond Leagues and the circuit. Um, and the number two ranked athlete in the world is Britton Wilson with 49.1 this year. 
Rashida has just run faster than her. And even if you take indoors, Femke Ball of the Netherlands set a world indoor record of 49.23, I think it was, back in February. And Rashida has just gone faster than that. Um, so, yeah, it's very, very exciting for Irish athletics and Irish sport. And just to, again, to put more context, like, like all these stories, people begin to come to the story and kind of trying to find out exactly what's going on or where it's come from. Um, she was she was never a 400 metre runner, really, at any point in her career up until the last kind of 18 months, two years? Yeah, exactly. And she only actually started joining training with the 400 metre group in Texas last October. So essentially, in her first year or two, her coach there, Edric Floriel, um, got her running 200s. You know, she went over there as a 200 metre specialist. But I think her previous coach, even Dan Kilgallen, would tell you, they always kind of knew her future lay in the 400, especially at a college like Texas. You know, they have such a big budget. They have their pick of sprint talent to choose from. And when you're picking from the best of Caribbean and U.S. athletes, there's so many good 100 meter and 200 meter runners. So with an athlete like Rashida, especially with her her height, her stride, they were always going to look to move her towards the 400. And I think many people who followed her career, they saw she was fast, clearly, you know, at 200. She was a European under 20 champion. But I think everyone knew that once she moved to 400, she'd run some astonishing relay splits in 2021. And then, of course, once she moved last year, she finished ninth in the world at the age of 19 in an event she wasn't even training for at the World Championships. And then she finished fifth in the European final, having made some tactical errors as, a, you know, still a teenager against Europe's best seniors. So I think everyone knew once this starts to click and once she fully starts training for the 400, this could be mind-blowing. And to be honest, it is already mind-blowing at the age of 20. You were you were writing, Carl, about um, the fact that, you know, being a contender at world and Olympic level, as Rashida clearly now is, you're going to have shoe brands knocking on your door, you're going to have offers of six-figure contracts and the temptation will be there to turn professional in advance of the Olympics. But uh, like, will she, do you reckon... Stay in the in the amateur game because NCAA level is is significant enough, and there are advantages to that as well. Yeah, I think the big advantage in terms of staying where she is is that you know it's something she knows a year out from to, or a year out from the Paris Games, and it wouldn't be a change in her routine. Some athletes do turn professional and then stay base at the college. You know, they might even still attend classes. It's just they can't compete in that NCAA system anymore. So I think perhaps that would be the best option for her. But like I said, you know, there will be there will be a six-figure per year contract put on the table. I remember even been at an event back in February indoors in New York, and one of the one of the heads of sports marketing for one of the big brands came talking to me about Rashida in terms of what I thought about her and things like that. And they had already sat down with her at that point. But again, I think really the decision will come down to her and perhaps her coach. And a lot of times certain coaches are aligned with certain brands so and certain agents. So a lot can depend on that. Those offers will be being put in front of Rashida this week. She'll be sitting down with agents and trying to decide the next step. And a lot of times if you sign for a certain brand, you get kind of moved towards a certain training group. You know, if it was Adidas, it might be Lance Brownman, who's trains the Olympic champion and Shawnee Miller-Weebo. If it was Nike, maybe it would be Bobby Kersey over in the West Coast who trains Sydney McLaughlin, the Veroni, the 400-meter hurdles world record holder. So that can influence a lot which brand you sign for and which agent you sign for might determine which coach you stay with. But I think if you're looking at what Rashida has done over the past two years since joining Edric Floriel at Texas, I mean, there's no reason for her now to go anywhere else. And I think she is that kind of athlete. She's very sensible. And, she, you know, when we spoke to her back in March about turning pro, I don't think the money is the driving force for her. I think, you know, it's success and medals. And I think she and Edric would be sensible enough to try and keep things as consistent as possible because 
we have a very realistic medal contender on our hands next year. So I think she'll do everything she can to kind of keep things going in the direction they are. Uh, um, certainly NFL, uh, uh, college football players can now earn money from endorsements in a way that they weren't allowed to. Does the same, I presume the same rules apply to athletes? They do. And I thought, I actually thought that this was the case for all athletes, but I believe someone pointed out to me yesterday that NIL contracts can't apply to international students. So I think the vast majority of athletes in the NCAA are obviously American. But I think there is an issue there with visas and that their their visa is based on an educational visa. And perhaps if they're earning money, that changes things. So I think that, again, would push the kind of balance towards Rashida turning pro because, you know, you, you could be leaving a lot of money behind to stay in the NCAA for another year. Yeah, and like uh, I don't know, we always end up talking about these, but particularly a lot of the athletes are, and people are really familiar with this. But you, you, you're carded, but you earn a certain amount of money from the government. But it's it can be breadline level once you take into account travel, coaching, and all that kind of stuff. And obviously, she'll be the coaching will be looked after from her, her scholarship. But uh, there are no rich athletes who are competing for Ireland on the international stage who aren't global superstars and we don't have any of those at the moment except in this instance now we do yeah we do and I think Rashida for the next several years will never you know struggle financially in terms of she'll have the top level backing from Sport Ireland she'll have if she decides to come home at any stage she'll have all the medical resources put in front of her Um, and if she decides to stay in the US you know given what she's achieved she'll be signed to a multi-year contract by a shoe brand and she she will have all the support she needs. But at the same time, you know, there's so much money flowing through the collegiate programs. You know, her coach is rumored to be on a, a very high six-figure salary for doing what he's doing in Texas. Um, and there's so many resources, you know, it's, it's I think it's worth 70 or $80,000 a year, even just her scholarship for an international student. And there's, there's so much, whether it's, you know, psychological backup, medical backup, whatever she needs, she has on her doorstep at Texas. So I think she will probably look at it and say, a year out from Paris, why would I change anything? The psychological uh, backup that you mentioned there, Cal, clearly is working because Rashida seems to be really mentally very, very strong. Um, you listen to her interviews and even talking about this race, she was saying, uh, you know, the rivalry with Britain Wilson, I don't feel anyone is supposed to go in as favourite. There's rankings, but they don't mean anything until you run the race. Like, f- for uh, someone of 20 years of age, she seems very, very mature. She does, and I think... You know, I think anyone who looked at Rashida's progress and her year today would have said, you know, she's going to run low 49 seconds at some stage soon. But I think what was most impressive is that she did it under pressure and she is showing consistently an ability that when I think of Irish athletes, you think of maybe Dervil O'Rourke or someone like that, where it's not just the fact that they produce whatever their best was throughout the season. It's that they kind of unlock an extra gear on the biggest stage. And Rashida is doing that. You know, she did it at European under 20 level. She'd be running PBs in the European under 20 finals to win those medals. And now she's doing it at NCAA level. Last year, she did it in Oregon, ran her best race in the world semifinal. And everyone thought she has to be cooked, you know, by August. She's been racing for six months, but she ran her, I think it was her 50th race of the year, that European final, and she ran her 400 meter PB. And now with all the pressure on, and it's not just pressure on Rashida to win the individual title, Texas were relying on her points to rack up a big tally in that 400 meters. And they're on their home turf as well in front of more than probably 10,000 fans, I think, in that stadium on Saturday night. And with everyone 
the lens on her, she stepped up to another level again. And that is such an impressive quality in an athlete. And as we look towards the future, you know, even if you take this year's World Championships in Budapest and next year's Olympics in Paris, I don't think Rashida, to be honest, will be feeling any more pressure than she felt on Saturday night in front of the, the Texas crowd. So I think that's a very good sign that she's able to psychologically not just maintain what she's doing, but actually ascend to a higher level. I know you're making the point about not changing too much in advance of the Olympics in Paris. Would would there be a, a consideration at some point for doing the Diamond League as preparation for that and, and getting that on-track experience against the other contenders for medals? Or is it better to be slightly out of that and just come to the Olympics? I, I guess, you know, how do you plot the course taking into consideration all of the variables? Well, I think it'll all depend if she turns pro or not. If she does turn pro, you know, that'll happen in the next few weeks and we'll we'll have our news on that sure, um, soon, I'm sure. And if that happens, you know, Rashida will be out there on the NC or on the Diamond League circuit this summer and certainly next summer. You know, the NCAA is a great racing system. It's a great proving ground to prepare you for competing at the world and Olympic level. You know, the standard is probably only a few percent different um the only real difference is almost the depth because these are ready-made champions that come out of the ncaa typically they're ready-made medalists if you conquer the ncaa in a sprint event so i think if she does turn pro the build-up to the paris olympics will feature a lot of diamond leagues you know i, I can't see her returning to an irish base she'll I, I would expect perhaps she'll stay with edric regardless even if she does turn pro and remain training in texas for the next year and then i think her racing opportunities will start opening up to the diamond leagues you know because there's there's things like appearance fees there's good prize money but also i think perhaps more importantly than that it's a chance to to race the athletes she's going to be racing you know to, to reach an olympic final next year the likes of sean emiller weebo the likes of sydney mclaughlin yeah it might only be a handful of races but i think we can expect to see her out there on the circuit um, and can, can if you do, not this summer then certainly next summer can you do both could she stay amateur and then still appear in diamond league but not take the prize money is that possible? Is there, is there a, a, I think, yeah, you can, you can actually do that, I think, but I think very few do because just because the NCAA system, um, kind of requires you to race so much. Like I said, 50 races last year, Rashida ran between the kind of summer, I suppose, championship races and the NCAA races throughout this early spring and spring and early summer. So I think just because of that, I think the energy wise and preparation wise, it wouldn't make much sense to get out there in the okay. circuit if she does continue racing in the NCAA. She seems uh, ready-made to take advice as well, Cal, because but I'm just judging that based off her improvements and, and the times and, and breaking the record constantly. Uh, the Michael Johnson tweet from, from a number of months back where he said, look out when she learns to use those arms. She's carrying them instead of, of using them to drive the legs. The difference is significant over 400, helps increase speed and reduce fatigue. I mean, you'd, you'd imagine she's, she's taken some of that advice on board because she has improved so much. Absolutely. you know, she And I think Rashida, you know... <laughs> It's such an unfair thing to compare anyone to Usain Bolt, but when I think of Rashida, you know, in terms of we used to be commentating on her races back when she was 14 years old, you know, running for Tala, running for Terenure in the school's championships, and you could see then she was taller than all her competitors, and she was it was kind of like Bambi on ice when she'd be coming out of the blocks. Her her technique would be all over the place, and it kind of did remind me of Usain Bolt when you see the footage of him when he was 15 still beating his competitors who were far more kind of mechanically sound at that point. But you could see the engine was there and the talent was there. And that once someone kind of cleaned up her technique and got her running kind of closer towards the the best technical model of sprinting, she was going to absolutely take off into the stratosphere. And that's what she's done. And I think there's huge credit while, you know, Edric Floriel will be getting so much 
deserved credit for the work he's done over the last two years at Texas for the previous couple of years before that, Dan Kilgallen at Tala, who is one of, if not the best, Irish athletics coaches and does it all in an amateur capacity. He took over Rashida's career. And you could very easily grab the low-hanging fruit with an athlete like that. You could say, right, I want her to win a world junior medal. I want her to, you know, smash the Irish records at the age of 17. And he knew from talking to Rashida and her mother that she was going to go towards the NCAA system down the line. And instead of kind of taking that short-term view, he got her in the gym, you know, Claire Brady at the Sport Ireland Institute. And he his focus for those couple of years was on cleaning up her technique so that when she ascended to the kind of heavier, higher level of training that's required to be a world-class sprinter, she wouldn't break down. And I think so much of what we're seeing now in Rashida comes back to those couple of years of kind of foundational work that Daniel did on her technique and her strength to prepare her to kind of survive and thrive in the NCAA. Um, is there room for more Irish sprinters now to consider going to America? Because there was a period of time where people were thinking that actually the best thing to do is to stay in Ireland. We've got a lot of supports here, but that actually maybe this is going to make some people consider about going back to the States and taking advantage of that system as well. Yeah, I think Irish athletics has completely changed, you know, in the last 10, 15 years. You know, the effective immigration and the kind of different genetic pool we have to choose from now in athletics has also kind of boosted that spread of abilities. It's not just middle distance runners that Ireland is producing. We do have some field eventers, you know, we uh, nearly had a world junior medalist last year in Reese Adamola and obviously Rashida and there's many others like her coming up through that system in the school system and they're very talented sprinters that Ireland is now producing. So yeah, I think the doors are starting to open. I think traditionally though, the NCAA, you know, those US colleges, given they had the best of Caribbean and US talent to choose from, they didn't really need European sprinters, so they didn't really recruit European sprinters all that much. Rashida's talent level was just off the charts as a teenager, so they obviously were all going after her. But I think what we will see more of now is that, you know, more Irish sprinters, and there are a few others that kind of, I suppose, lesser accomplished colleges around the US, and I think we will see more of that in the years ahead, where it's, it's not just our middle and long distance talent that goes to the US. I know we can sometimes get carried away with our young athletes in this country, but uh, you mentioned Dervla Rourke. She was on the show recently and, and she said that she believes she's going to be one of Ireland's greatest ever sports people, Rashida Adelecki. Like, would you go along with that? I think so, but I, I do also, I think when you're, you know, when you're tweeting about Rashida and stuff, you can see there's always a huge reaction and there's always an incredible amount of support comes in. But I just always get a bit hesitant when you see some of the very confident predictions that float around um, just because you know that so much can go wrong between the ages of like 20 and 23 for any athlete and between any age really like you know I think Seb Cole said every great athlete is only a hamstring tear away from oblivion and that is the case with someone like Rashida you know it's all perfect now but there'll be a time where she gets injured maybe she gets sick maybe she gets off form or anything in her personal life there's so many things that can go wrong in the development of an athlete but I will say this she is the best place, you know, an Irish athlete has probably ever been at the age of 20. And I think when I look towards the Paris Olympics, you know, there are some people who are kind of almost hanging the medal around her neck right now. But Rashida is currently where she needs to be. She's running low 49 seconds. She's up there with the best in the world right now. But I look towards the women's 400 meters um, down the line at the Paris Olympics and you will have Shawnee Miller-Weebo, who's coming back from maternity leave, she's a 48.3 athlete, two-time Olympic champion. You Sydney McLaughlin, who's eyeing up a double, 
she's run under 48 seconds in a relay and she's supposedly training to try and break the 400 meter world record she will also if she opts for the 400 meters be running in the low to mid 48 seconds next year you've paulino the world leader who's already running 48.9 she'll probably be dropping down through the 48s and then you've the 2019 world champion salva aid nasser who was banned for anti-doping whereabouts violations and she's just about returning she's already gone under 50 seconds and I expect to her probably be back down under 49 seconds. So if you're talking Paris Olympics, I think it's going to take under 49, probably in the low to mid 48 seconds kind of time to win an Olympic medal, which is a huge ask. But again, Rashida has got to 49.20 um, at the age of 20. So as long as she stays healthy, stays doing what she's doing, there's no reason she won't be going right down into those 48 seconds next year and up there with the very, very best in the world. Budapest is August this year. That's the World Athletic Championships. Um, oh, is there a, a, do we know an obvious pathway between now and then? How many, how many times we'll see her in the meantime? I would expect she'll probably take a week off now and go on a holiday maybe or just chill out over in Texas. Um, but I think part of competing for Ireland is you, you're expected to run at the national championships, which are at the end of July. So she will probably stay in Texas for the majority of summer under the watchful eye of Edric. Um, and then she has said she intends at the moment anyway to compete at the European Under-23 Championships, which are the middle of July in, I think, Estonia. I'm still sceptical if they're looking towards winning the world medal, whether she will show up there um, and whether it would make sense for her to kind of fly transatlantic um, to compete there. And maybe that just after kind of what the NCAA season she's had, maybe a slow build up towards Budapest and just getting some freshness back in her legs might be the best option. But I think, yeah, the next time we might see her compete, probably if she does go for those European under-23s, I think they're in the middle of July. And then national championships are the end of July. But I think that the place will certainly be seen. Rashida, assuming she stays healthy for the next two months, will be at those world championships, which I think kick off on the 18th or 19th of August. All right, Carl, we'll leave it there. Good stuff. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. That's uh, Carl Denny there talking to us about uh, the situation with Rashida Adelecki at 9.34 this morning. Uh, we are live every morning with Gillette Labs. Get the ultimate shave or your money back. Neon Light Edition is available now. On tomorrow's show, reaction to John Klein's South Africa move. Build-up begins to the Republic of Ireland against Greece. And plenty more besides. Right now, the Sunday Paper Review looks at some of the big stories in Irish football. Have a magnificent Monday. OCB AM with Gillette Labs. Get the ultimate shave or your money back. Neon Night Edition, available now.